So what's life like at the top of the TGFBI overall standings? I'll ask Jeff Zimmerman about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April 16th. It's show number 20 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Jeff Zimmerman, who writes regularly for Rotographs and appears on the Launch Angle podcast, and he'll be discussing his very successful TGFBI team, using FAB advantageously, how to target free agents, dealing with the changing closer universe, his boons and banes, and even more. We'll have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including injuries to Tyler O'Neill, Max Fried, Christian Pache, Adrian Morahan, and a Twitter question about Jonathan India and more. Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including the merry weather go round in the Toronto bullpen, injuries hitting the Angels and Twins, COVID hitting the Astros, and Byron Buxton hitting everything except outfield fences. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon looks at prep shortstops Jordan Lawler and Marcelo Meyer. In the Frequent Flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Cubs right-hander Doris Valdez. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about my mixed feelings about the return from injury of San Diego shortstop Fernando Tatis. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Jeff Zimmerman is in the house. We gotta talk some baseball. And we're gonna. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's part one of our two-part feature expert interview with Jeff Zimmerman, who writes regularly for Rotographs and appears on the Launch Angle podcast. Jeff, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, and congratulations on the great start in TGFBI. Uh, thank you. I, I'd rather be there than somewhere else. Like I said, I can I know I'll move down, and that's just one of those deals. But like I said, it's um, I really don't feel like any like I don't have any like the great players, but it just seems like everyone's contributing and I've had health. I think if anyone knows that I have another team that my first two picks didn't play the first week or so because of the um, COVID out COVID issues with the nationals and Mets. So, I mean, I understand some teams are just really struggling, but like I said, I, this one I've dodged bullets on. Well, you have had some good performances. Shane Bieber looks very solid, a whip well under one. And, um, up till the other night, I think Kevin Gausman was doing all right for you. And Matt Boyd was doing really well for you. Uh, the only exception that I noticed on your roster was, uh, Amir Garrett really struggling. He's got a couple of saves, but his ERA is through the roof and his whip is through the roof. Uh, how have you, when you look at the, your player's at this early stage of the season, how patient are you with the underperformers and how excited are you about the overperformers? I guess I can be disappointed with some of them, but it's just so early. Like there'll be times in the middle of the season, we're going to have guys just have a bad week and we're just not going to notice it. The ones I was kind of been diving more into are the guys I drafted late that I had, you know, I was like, well, I'll take a chance here. And um, I was kind of big on Rowdy Telez, and I think I've moved past him on this league. And it's just some of those guys like that where it's it's like, well, 
you know, I was iffy to begin with. And well, I'm just going to kind of stay that way. Um, the pitching I've kind of hit on, like I took some chances with Steven Matz. I kind of thought I saw something there and um, went with him. And um, so, no, it's kind of just been a nice little team and I'll just, yeah, keep going with it. It's kind of interesting. Um, my co-author for the book, The Process, Tanner Bell is in third. So um, I think at some point here, we, we want to see if we can get with like the one, two, but besides that, um, you know, just like, it's nice to, to be on top and, um, We'll see how the season goes. It's a long year. It is. And I wonder if anybody's ever done any research about how late in the season you have to be sort of top 10 before you're fairly solidly entrenched there. You know what I mean? Uh, I know that uh, last year, Todd Zola, when he won, uh, he he ran, uh, gosh, most of the year he was top 10 sort of right away and, and stayed there for the whole season. As the season rolls along, of course, we know that the positions solidify more but when you're talking about 435 competitors and you can literally gain or lose three or four or five hundred points in a day it's a bit different of a kettle of fish i think yeah i don't know what it is for the overall type of things i know in individual leagues after like two months things are fairly set and there's been some research with that so um I know I've come back from it or fallen from those, but still usually you kind of know what's going on then and you can kind of figure it out. And it's a little bit different, especially like in trading leagues, because if you're short on, you know, steals and someone else has a ton, you can kind of, you know, balance that out. But yeah, I haven't heard no so much on like an overall competition. How confident are you about Amir Garrett holding on to the role? I'm not one bit. I'm, I think that that's one situation if, if people are out there that they can kind of attack. Um, Sims has been okay. And um, I think like Doolittle, he's always kind of hurt, but he's one that's had the job and it wouldn't be surprised me if, you know, Doolittle comes in and takes it. But Amir Garrett, the one thing is his kind of, all his stats look really bad from one non-save opportunity. So he's gotten, when he's supposed to lock down the game, he's done a good job. So I think he still has it, but for those people that are kind of needing saves, you kind of have to look for that situation that blows up and get a week ahead. And it's kind of one that's a little bit shaky. So I think it's one that you can kind of like just get everyone in that bullpen and just hope, you know, your guy is the one that comes out on top. How many other leagues are you playing in Jeff and how are you doing in those? I'm too many. Um, I'm in two main events and I've, our teams are in the NFBC and we're actually, I'm winning both and like the top sixties in the overall. So that's kind of nice. My OCs on the online championships are doing okay. I'm third or fourth in. And then um, I've got a bunch of draft and holds and they're not doing good. I drafted them early and I really loved kind of the second tier of starters and grabbed a ton of them. The Carrascos, the Sunny Grays, the Hunter, Wander Javier's on Dilson Lamets, and you can tell how those teams are doing considering I haven't gotten like a single stat from any of them. So it was just one of those deals. Like I didn't want to pay it for the pitching. It was like, I'll just grab it from this tier and that tier just disappeared on me. So I'm kind of struggling with starters in um, a lot of those. Yeah, it sounds like a, a mash unit more than a fantasy baseball lineup. And, of course, that's a chance you take when you when you go for a guy like Lamette. I took him in at least one league as well, and it's kind of a 
coin you toss knowing that the uh, the odds are probably slanted a little bit against you given his track record and you'd do it anyway because that's what the draft is offering at the time you got to make the choice yeah and it's just it's so tough to kind of balance that how many it all depends on the league type usually with like my tout or my labor team they have the unlimited il so you can if some guy's hurt, you can put him there and you just hope you get him back. But something like the NFBC where you have seven slots and your hurt guys have to be part of it, it's like how long can you just get nothing from him? Or especially now this part of the year when there are guys just popping up um, out of nowhere. Like I'm, Matt's wasn't drafted in a lot of leagues and people are adding him now. It's like, well, do you sit – how long? Yeah, you sit with that guy for weeks and weeks, and then if he comes back, you don't even know if he's going to be good. I'll usually sit on a hitter, but it's sometimes really tough to be sitting on pitchers, and then we don't get any news. We get some vague thing that, oh, Carrasco's throwing four innings, but when's he coming back? And I was like, I don't know. But it's like, well, he's throwing four innings. Shouldn't that be soon? But still, like, vague vagueness. And I know we talk a lot about uh, trying to base most of our decisions on research and on things that we know f to be true, but this is an area that's kind of gray for me in that we kind of know from anecdotal sources and from our own experience playing that pitchers just have that reputation of being higher risk when they're coming back from injury, the likelihood of them re regaining their their perfect form, shall we say, is probably less than hitters. I've never seen any research to support this, but I really do believe it, that uh, that uh, a pitcher coming back from injury is inherently more risky than a hitter coming back from injury. I don't. Uh, again, I might be wrong, but do you approach hitters and pitchers with that kind of difference in mind? Yeah, and I'll definitely sit um, pitchers. I had Robbie Ray in a couple places, and... Um, there was no way I was starting him this week. Like he's so volatile anyway. And it's like, I want to see what I've got. And at least I get two starts to kind of figure out what that is. Um, yeah. Usually like if the hitter comes in, I mean, the worst thing you can do is just not, he can't really, I guess he could hurt your batting average, but he doesn't have both the ratios. If some pitcher comes in and just gets blown up his first two starts and heads back to the DL. I mean, he could raise your, at this point in the year, your ERA almost a half point, yeah. you know, and your whip, one or something so it's you kind of just want to know what you've got and the, the worst thing right now is most of the time we would see these guys like in the rehab starts or at least get some news from it like oh he had a three inning rehab start in triple a he threw yeah the three innings struck out four guys and didn't walk any you're like all right he's not walking anyone or if you see the guy was down there and he's like oh he struck out one and walked four like yeah i ain't starting him in the majors when he comes up you know we just have to kind of assume you know, we just have no idea what, what the talent level he's at or how many pitches he was throwing, like in that triple A start, you know, Oh, he threw 60 pitches. He might not get throw enough innings to get a win when he comes back up. I'm just going to sit him. Or if in the triple A start, he threw it, you know, 85, 90 pitches. You're like, well, shoot, I've got a chance to win. Let's go for it. I think also uh, we have to consider the relative severity of the injury. I'm thinking of a guy like Eliezer Hernandez in Miami. Uh, you have him on your, uh, TGFBI team as do I and now I think we're facing a choice of can we afford to leave this guy on our short reserve you mentioned we only get seven slots and there's no separate injured list and you're starting to think well it was forearm trouble which is often a problem with the elbow there's Tommy John sort of looming darkly in his future 
at some point you have to, you know, fish or cut bait on a guy like Hernandez. And at what point, Jeff, do you think you'll be fishing and or cutting bait? I want to, everything seems to be okay. It's probably when the rest of my team gets hurt. I'm only riding one other player, Alex Karoloff. So I have five kind of guys to stream in and out that are healthy. I think it'll be more of three of my other guys get hurt during a week. And I, you know, want to keep some of the other players on my bench that he's going to be the one that has to go. I think, you know, that I think that, like I said, this team's just been healthy and that's what I've been, you know, that's why it's there. So um, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens when, yeah, when three of my guys go on the injured list in a week and when the cuts really have to come. As they always do. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jeff Zimmerman from Rotographs and the Launch Angle Podcast. And Jeff, at Rotographs, you have a regular weekly feature. Usually I see it on the weekends, advising readers on possible waiver wire targets for that weekend's fab runs. For you, what makes a player a waiver wire target? Um, the one thing I, um, I kind of have what I think mine will be, but what I found is I just look at CBS and Yahoo and see who who's already being picked up. Like what's everyone kind of looking at? And it helps me figure out like why. I mean, sometimes it's kind of obvious. Like Tyler Naquin last week was just, you know, he was going off. So he was one of the top pickups. But with that, it's kind of like, okay, these are the ones being added. Why is that? And um, kind of rank them. The other thing is, is I don't play in the shallowest of leagues. So a lot of times that was always kind of been a complaint, I think, with the industry is I kind of stay with them and they get some players that I wouldn't consider, but maybe other people will. That they'll, you know, be um that they need for the yeah, for the shallower 12 team, 10 team type of leagues. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, in any league format that you're trying to analyze, it's always going to be a mismatch for some of the readers. And uh, as a as somebody who plays in uh, sort of twelve team only and fifteen mixed, which I think is pretty common in uh, in the audience, I think we want to know a little bit about kind of the waiver wire targets at various levels, rather than just saying you know we're we're all going to assume that Stephen Matz is available in your league. Well, you know maybe he's not going to be. So I, I think a mention of him at least in passing is is worth making because there are some readers or listeners who are going to say, hey, wait a second, you know I'm in the kind of league where he is going to be available, or conversely that you know that I, I have that opening that I might consider him based on my league format, my league structure. Yeah, and I've been in those AL only leagues too, where you literally, depending on the rules, you look at like the available players. And there's like, I remember one time there were six hitters who had played it that were playing in any form that I could take. And like most of these guys were just bench bats. Like everything was just gutted from the wire. And in those cases, I remember someone in the comments was like, well, you weren't helping me in that league. I'm like, you have six choices. Like pick the best one. You know, it's like, (laughs) those are just so deep. It's like, there's nothing I can help with. And the one thing I stay away from and it's just not my specialty is ask someone else on prospects. I'm I'll kind of know if there's a triple a guy or like the top guys coming up and read up to know when they're coming, but any of the really deeper ones, it's just something I, I only have so much bandwidth and it's, there's enough other people covering them. You need to go find that prospect person and just, you know, hound them to death. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And especially uh, nowadays, more and more leagues are allowing you to pick those guys up while they're still in the minors. And so you want to try to get them, especially in fab situations, where you can maybe bid a dollar or two before the guy gets called up. In Tout Wars, we can do that. You have to carry him active for a week, even if he's not called up. But the price in fab can be a $0 bid or a $1 bid. And after he comes up, he's going to be a $100 bid. So uh, I think if your league allows you to do that, that's something that you probably want to be aware of in your rules and then also be aware of the players who might be affected. Yeah, always the all-star game week is in Tout Wars is like, there's all those zeros or everyone's grabbing the prospects because it's the short week that they only have to carry them and not as long. So I know I've done it a, a few times where it's like, well, we're just going to take... Look, couple zeros this week to get those prospects now. Of course, it's a bit hamstrung this year because there is no minor leagues to, to watch and monitor, and uh, we have to kind of take a lot of it on faith and pedigree and that kind of thing. Uh, you often recommend uh, spending a percentage of FAB budget on players. First of all, the percentages of the base, not what you have left, I- I'm guessing, and how do you figure it out? Yeah, it's, 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 it's of the base usually. Um, when we get later in the year... We'll, have, we'll kind of see it. One thing is um, the NFBC, and it's usually what I've based it off of, is that they have the historical data. So you kind of know like what closers will go for, and you can kind of go back and match it. They have it from previous years. I mean, don't use 2020 because everything was, you know, we had the same amount of money to spend over a few weeks, but they have the older stuff beyond that. So you can kind of go back and kind of have an idea of that. So. Um, and then the other thing is, I just find it really important to plan your season out and just save some back for the end game. Like that last month, just don't touch $80 or or 88% of your budget. Like you want to be able to make those eight moves at the end or right at that last week when everyone else is out to get the pitchers or it may even be um, attack those categories that you need. You know, it might not just be like, Oh, I'm just going to get the best players. Like, oh, I got to go move to stolen bases, or maybe some guy that was just blowing everyone away with saves drops a closer. I've even done that. It's like, okay, I'm winning. This isn't helping me. And like in the NFBC, it's like, all right, it's, you know, I ain't just going to hold him. So I need something else on my bench. So you can go kind of grab those guys. But I think the biggest thing is keeping some for the end and just compare every week to what it's going. I mean, it seems like right now in the NFBC, it's taking about a. to $100 for any guy that's kind of in like the closer range so that you kind of have to kind of expect to pay that. You also have a regular feature at Rotographs called Who is Being Dropped and Why? And this is obviously interrelated. And it's all based on NFBC main event drops. Uh, This recap is highly interesting to me because it's often really actionable. And before we get to particular players, how should readers take advantage of your reporting and the analysis? Yeah, I think the key is it's like, not look at like, I think a lot of what I found was everyone was like, Oh, the obvious drops. Like, yeah, the guy has Tommy John surgery. It's like, you know, James Paxton is done for the year. Like I've heard so many people talking about that. And it's like, well, that was just like obvious. Like anyone you know should be doing that. It's kind of those tougher choices you're making. Um, like we were talking with Elias or Hernandez, like he was close to it. Like I've seen him dropped and I've seen people picking him up. Like he's on that, like, well, do I keep him or not? And I kind of just kind of go through some of those guys to see which ones are the right on the edge that like are getting dropped in like about a quarter of the leagues, quarter of the teams, you know, that that guy's going out of. So it's, it's those tougher decisions. 
and seeing if these guys are being dropped, maybe it's someone you should be looking at picking up. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to stay away from like the obvious or if there was like, I don't know what's going to happen with it. I know the NFBC sometimes will block the player, but in one of my online championships, someone dropped Trent Grissom. So we're mm-hmm. like, I saw that and I was like, all right, so that's like an obvious one, but that's not applicable to 99.9% of the rest of the leagues. You know, he was, he's not available. So there's no reason to talk about him. In Monday's edition of uh, Who's Being Dropped, you said most of the big NFBC hitter drops were understandable because they were just not producing, but you were a bit more reserved about St. Louis outfielder Tyler O'Neill. What's your take on Tyler O'Neill, and why are you a bit reserved about the fact that he's off to a slow start? Um, I think the one thing with O'Neill that I'm kind of... Um, he did... He, he can hit for power. He's shown that before. He's got a little bit of speed. I just thought at some point he had shown, he'd had some decent BABIPs his first two years, and they just had died off the last two years. So I think that there's some time in there, and he's going to have a hot streak, and we're going to be mad that we aren't holding him. But since he has, like, no walks and striking out about half the time, I think he's it's really just tough. I think he's kind of like, he has to almost be on your bench right now until he figures something out. But again, it would be like, oh, if I got a team where I want to keep four guys that just got hurt. Like O'Neill just might have to go. And you just don't have time to kind of wait him out and um, hope he gets it together. Similarly, you advise scooping San Francisco outfielder Austin Slater, who is being dropped in leagues. Uh, what do you like about Slater? Yeah, he's actually been playing okay i mean there's worse guys out there i mean he's got a six around the 660 ops i mean it's not great but it's not as bad as some of the other hitters that are being dropped they're running around three four hundred i mean they're just not doing anything so he's getting on base he's stealing some i think if he just gets a few more hits to fall it'll be good the one thing you need to watch with him is that that strikeout rate it really jumped this year and i don't know i haven't looked to see his opponents exactly but it's up about 15 percentage points from 20% to 36%. So I think that that's one thing where he could, if that sticks, I'm kind of a little bit worried, but I think that there's a chance for um, some good um, speed right here. And a guy that's still playing, like there's no reason for them to sit him. He's not struggling that much, but like in an average league, he's kind of dragging you down. Um, If you're an OBP league, you still got a 333 um, OBP. So, I mean, that's perfectly fine, almost, you know, to the positive. I noticed that uh, when you had your note about Nomar Mazzara, the Detroit outfielder, was being dropped all over the place like a hot potato, you asked a rhetorical question about why he was on rosters in the first place. There was some promise there, wasn't there? It just didn't seem to bear out? Well, I think everyone thought he would be playing all the time in Detroit outfield. And Akil Badu has um, kind of made sure that it hasn't happened. But Mazzara's always been just kind of a platoon bat. He just has really struggled against lefties. Um, and that I know they haven't given him a lot of plate appearances, but he hasn't t- really taken advantage of them when he has. I mean, he has about three times as many plate appearances against righties. So his overall stats look good. He's just not playing all the time. And it just kind of seems like he's on the bench too much. So he's kind of one of these hitters that um, 
it's just a lot of them in the league right now. Like they're playing, but not all the time. And you really just want those counting stats from those guys that are in every day. And if they're not in every day, at least they're trying to give you elite home runs or elite stolen bases. And he's kind of okay with the home runs. And maybe he's one that um, you'll be able to time the week where he's um, up against a bunch of righties. You know that that's what it's going to be. And you can run him for a, like an NFBC for a half of a week or the full week with him. On the pitching side, Jeff, you wrote that you're not entirely giving up on Kansas City starter Brad Keller, who's being dropped all over the place because of some horrific production numbers. Why the optimism uh, about this guy? Because when I saw Brad Keller's name pop up, the first thing that I did was look at his walks and strikeouts, and he's actually walking more guys than he's striking out, which is usually something that you want to steer well clear of. But you said you're not entirely giving up. Yeah, if you want to drop him, that's fine. I think he's one you got to track. Like he added velocity and he just decided since he's throwing like a little bit faster, he's just going to throw his fastball. And I don't know why he's doing that, but it was always like, it wasn't a great fastball. Okay. So it moved up a little bit, but he just moved away from his breaking pitches. So I think that there's a chance that he's made um, the improvement with that. His slider's always been good. The home home runs. And like he said, he's getting hit around because they know it's just a fastball coming and everyone in the majors can hit a 94 mile an hour fastball. So I think that he can make some changes um, on how he's approaching hitters and kind of turn it around. And with that ERA, all those changes aren't going to be seen. So maybe every couple of weeks kind of see what he's done the last few games. And the main thing I would just look for to see if his fastball is usually just around 50%, not at 70% like it is right now. You were a bit surprised that Angels right-hander Alex Cobb was being dropped in eight leagues, even though we know now he's going to be in a six-man rotation, which should limit his innings somewhat. Uh, why are you still uh, positive to the extent you are on Alex Cobb? Um, he's actually pitching good. I mean, it's not completely out of hand. He does have like a little bit of a high ERA, um, kind of bad but driven. 13K per strikeouts per nine, 1.5 walk per nine. I mean, this is just great. His ERA estimator is around two. Um, he's gotten, I mean, he's gotten hit around a little bit, but I mean, with a near 60% ground ball rate, I mean, this is borderline an elite pitcher if his stats continue this way, that ERA will normalize. And the other thing, um, I don't know if a lot of people were putting it together with Otani being hurt. They're moved to a five-man rotation now since he's just out of it. So Cobb actually has two starts this week. And this might be more of something I was even looking at is if Otani stayed, he had two starts the week before. And it's um, something I always try to keep track of is trying to get ahead of a week ahead of those two start weeks. So I knew they had seven games the next week and Cobb was supposed to have that Monday start. So I was like, oh, he's got two starts coming up and they were reasonable. But now he's got two starts this week. So, no, I think he has to be owned almost universally to see if this um, changes can just getting out of Baltimore is um, good for him. But no, I don't, I don't know what people want more from their pitcher right now. You also said you're going to try adding Cincinnati right-hander Jeff Hoffman. If he's dropped in your leagues, he's being dropped in some. What's the appeal about a relatively unknown right-hander like Jeff Hoffman? He's just kind of been steady so far. I think one getting out of Colorado has just really kind of turned some guys around. Um, I think they just end up pitching better. I kind of like what the Reds are doing with their pitchers. They kind of get things going right. And so far, he's been kind of boring. It looks like someone I'm going to end up streaming. 8K per nine, 
sub four ERA kind of matches his ERA estimators. I'm not as high on him as I am Cobb, but he's at least a streamer in really shallow leagues and like a must own in other ones if he keeps us going. So no, I'm, I'm definitely interested in him. I think a lot of these starters that we just talked about are getting dropped because people are just trying to go for the closers and they just don't have the room for them right now. Going back a ways in the previous week's edition on April 5th, you noted that Chris Sale was finally being dropped and somewhat heavily. It seems anybody who drafted Hale was making an arbitrage play of some kind, sort of buying his stats for half a season, assuming he comes back more or less on schedule, at a rock-bottom price. What's the flaw in that tactic? It seems to make sense to me. I did it. Um, it it kind of depends on your league type. I own, in one league, two of the Tommy John guys um, because I have the IL spots. I think the problem sometimes is in um, the NFBC ones, it's like you have to kind of pick your battles of how many guys you want on the IL and how long you want to keep them. And I think the kind of the deal with sale, it was just possibly too long. and and maybe, um, how do I want to say it? Like, you're able to keep him, and that's how you like to work. But I kind of like to have those extra spots. I want to be able to kind of go for some different closers, want to go for some different starters. And maybe once all that's kind of settled on my team, I'll start looking for some of those um, injured guys and add them then. But right now, I'd rather have Jared Kalenic right now on my roster than um, or a lot of these rookies that may come up like him than someone like Sale. Like, I'll know right away if they're good or not, and then I can possibly go back and add Sale. I remember a couple of years I had um, Justin Upton and had to make this call early, and I I cut him, and I remember just every week it was like someone would pick him up, and like the next week they drop him, and then someone would pick him up, and the next week they drop him. And it's like you kind of see like people like, well, I'll take a chance, and then once they kind of like, well, it's just not kind of happening, and then they move on. You also do some chats at uh, Rotographs, and in a weekend chat about fab, you said you rarely spend more than 10% of your fab on a closer. Even if the guy's got the job, why not go hard on him? I would go all in if he's talented and has the job. If someone like Chapman went down and Shane Green was like the closer, he's going to be the job. It's like a lot of these guys right now, even with like Merriweather, he's kind of part-time. I think if I'd have known Class A, like we didn't know a lot of times, but like if I'd known like Class A was going to get it, I would have went all in, but um, to make sure I try to get him, but I wasn't for sure that was the case. Um, Trevino, I mean, it's it's Trevino. Is he really going to keep it all year? Is he not going to blow up? I mean, are we looking at like 15 saves? I kind of want to save that money back if I'm going to and go all in. And between now and then, I'm just going to kind of grind and hope you can hit pay dirt, like probably the people that picked up um, Kendall Graveman this last week kind of noticed if they already had him, they got him cheap. Um, I know I had him on my list, but I don't think I ended up with him. But it was just, it's just such a volatile thing. And if you go back and look over history that um, there's a lot of money wasted on it. And I'll just kind of save mine back and kind of, if I need one of those closers and I do in one league, it's like, I'm just going to go all in once it's like dead set with a talented, good, good guy. And between now and then I'll just kind of speculate on um, who could or could not um, end up with a job. 
You mentioned uh, Julian Merriweather on Tuesday night. He left the game with some kind of hip irritation problem, and it looks, in the Toronto media anyways, like it could be a little more serious than just an owie kind of situation. They brought in Tim Meza to, to finish off a game where they had a big lead in New York. But with Julian Merriweather potentially leaving the lineup with this uh, hip injury, we now have the possibility of uh, Dolis. You've got uh, Jordan Romano, who has struggled. Uh, how, what are you going to be looking at in that Toronto situation if Julian Merriweather goes on the IL with this uh, hip problem? He only threw two pitches and had to come out of the game. Back to Romano. I think he's the most talented. I, it's kind of a short sample, and like Merriweather was just so, throwing so good that there's just no way they could do it. Delise, he's another one of those guys, like, I don't know if he's good enough to really keep it for the whole year. So he may get it for a while, then lose it. So I think the best thing is probably to grab them both, but just, you just can't break the bank on it. We're going to have so many guys kind of pop up this year with, especially with the minors. We're not knowing who's good or not, or, or it'd be more of this case where like Merriweather had the job and everyone had kind of given up on, um, the rest of the Toronto bullpen and they were all on the wire and you can just go grab Romano then. So yeah, it's just such, I mean, all those people have spent that money on Merriweather, it's gone. And it's just one of those deals I tried just not to do. Just out of curiosity, Jeff, do you feel the same way about closers during the actual draft? Are you unwilling to invest heavily, even in a Chapman or a Liam Hendricks or a guy like that? Oh, I will go all in on the draft. And I did pretty much at times this year. I found that this year that they were just kind of being undervalued. And in most cases, I have one or two of those top guys. But if not, I just wasn't willing to spend on like the speculative ones in like rounds 10 through 20 because we just didn't know. I remember even in one, I put the money on um, or some on Alex Reyes. And I was just like, oh, great. That just wasted that money. So I kind of just went late and I just haven't really hit on anyone. It's just, how things kind of went. So in most leagues, I've got, I've got a steady closer. Um, one, like I lost Rosenthal. I mean, that was kind of, I didn't, I shouldn't have taken him or, you know, it's just bad luck in that case. But um, no, I either want, wanted someone big or I was willing to kind of um, play the game. Like I didn't think, but I was actually really big on Emilio Pagan and he didn't end up with it. It was just like I kind of guessed wrong in a lot of cases. Just didn't pay off. But no, I actually have quite a bit of Hader, Hendricks, Chapman. I kind of like having having those steady guys. So I didn't want to have two of them. That was the biggest thing too. Is I wanted at least one steady guy and not having to be grinding for two in this mess right now. Getting back to Fab, in general, managing Fab is a source of constant heartburn for a lot of fantasy players. If we assume that most fantasy managers know what they need on their rosters, which sometimes isn't the case, but most often will give people credit for recognizing, I need this, I need that, I obviously have an injury on my roster I have to replace, the trick still seems to be calculating the right amount to bid. Is it possible to have rules of thumb for this or what are your rules of thumb when you're setting up your fab valuations and going into a a weekend bidding uh, situation? I always start with what I always call like the tactical, like do, can I fill my lineup with at least reasonable players that are playing all the time that they're not hurt? Like, you know, one of my catchers got hurt. All right. Probably going to drop him unless it's one of like the top four or five. Cause I'm just not going to carry a couple catchers. And then, 
find a bunch and it's like there's probably the catchers on the waiver wire aren't that great. There's not a big difference between them. They all kind of probably stink is I'll just put in the minimum bid on them and just be like, all right, I've at least solved that problem. And then I start looking um, probably a little bit more long-term or maybe for that next week to see if anyone's got a good matchup. You know, someone's going to Colorado or there's a two-start week. But in most of those cases, I'm not going to spend over maybe 2% of my budget on that. That gives me like half through the year. Like each week I've got 2% just to kind of stream and go for some guys that week. And I think in those cases, um, as I've grown old, I guess, is I accept that I'm going to lose some. I think every week you, at the beginning, you're like, oh, I can stream and win this week if I spend, you know, 5% of my budget. But, you know, after 10 weeks into the season, <laughs> you've spent half your budget streaming. And, you know, and that's not even going after like any rookie call-ups or closers and so forth. So I think the biggest thing is kind of, yeah, on that weekly side of things, just limit yourself to 2 maybe even 3%. And then you've got the rest of your budget to – add players that you think are better. And maybe you think like, oh, Steven Matz, he's streaming this week with two starts. He's maybe a little bit better. I'll throw in an extra buck or two or, you know, an extra few percent. because so I think he might be better long-term, but I think it's knowing that difference. If, is this a guy that's potentially going to be on my roster the rest of the season? Or if I just have him for a week. In keeper leagues and other longstanding formats, Jeff, managers have uh, an advantage that, assuming that the opponents have been fairly stable over the years, as many uh, home leagues are, we know how our opponents are going to bid, or we suspect we know how uh, opponents are going to bid in a given situation. But when we have formats like NFBC and adjuncts like uh, TGFBI, we don't know the tendencies of most of our opponents because we've never played with them before. How does that fact color the fab calculations that we have to make? Um, it does... I would just kind of look at the overall and just um, see what's happening with that. And with your league, also, if some guys just um, – I've got one guy in one of my leagues that out of the thousands got $23 left. So it's like, well, you got 23 possible moves the rest of the season, and that's just like not a lot. <laughs> I mean, it's, I think that that's part of it. But I, um, you can start like within the week seeing if your league's a little bit higher. I know my Tout Wars um, mixed league – you better bring your money. Everyone's spending. They're going to spend hard. It's always been like you said. And um, I think some of the, we had some new people came in and they're like, well, I guess people spend in this league. Like you kind of have to step up, you know, type of thing to, to get your money. But um, it's just tough to know on those one leagues. And it's again, kind of accepting that you're going to lose some um, to begin with and not blow it all. And yeah, I kind of know this is a long season. Um, Usually the heaviest fab periods aren't really the first weeks. It's usually about a month or so in or two months in historically have been the big ones. And I think that's when the rookie call-ups are and teams are just like completely desperate. I think right now um, they're somewhat like they're, they notice they're down in the standings. So like, I've got to make a move. I've got to go get this guy. I'm just going to spend a ton. And a lot of times they'll have just some, borderline prospect come up and we ended up spending $300 of fab left on him. And I'm, I just will kind of pass on that. I'd rather 
grab like Oscar Noah and kind of, he kind of just slid through this week and you can get him for like 50 bucks, maybe even a little bit less than that. And, um, take a chance on him. Yeah. It's always kind of a balancing act. I think there's tactical considerations to make. You look at everybody else's roster and say, Hey, I'm the only guy this week who needs a third baseman. I'm going to scale back on the, this particular third baseman, assuming it's not a really top caliber guy. Or, hey, this is a week where three of us need shortstops. I'm going to have to money up here a little bit. And and then there's the strategic side that you mentioned, which is, is this guy a one- or two-week proposition, or is this guy a rest-of-the-season proposition because the value extends, which makes him more more valuable and worth, I think, a little bit higher of a bid. Really interesting uh, thought there, Jeff. Uh, this has been great so far. Tell you what, we'll let you towel off, catch a breather. Get you back in a few minutes. We'll talk about your Twitter feed and your boons and banes. Yeah, thanks. We'll talk here in a bit. Jeff Zimmerman writes regularly for Rotographs and appears weekly on the Launch Angle podcast. Jeff will be back a little later in the show, but coming up, we have our Market Watch Player News reports. Nick has the National League News. Ray has the American League. That's next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And please don't hate me for doing this. I could be reading an ad for products made from hemp or what they euphemistically call performance issues. Maybe lay off the hemp, fellas. (laughs) Okay, at BaseballHQ.com this week, in the speculator column, analyst Ryan Bloomfield leaps to conclusions with snap judgments about hitters based on their early quality of batted balls metric. In the big hurt, injuries analyst Matthew Cedarholm looks at injuries to Christian Walker, Christian Yelich, Miguel Cabrera, and more. And in playing time tomorrow, Jock Thompson tours all five teams in the American League West, looking at a shaky rotation in Seattle and an anemic offense deep in the heart of Texas. And those are just three articles among literally dozens, a small sample of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation and facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. There are buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in Brad Coleman's Market Pulse column, injury analysis in Matt Cedarholm's column The Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. So when you add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report. And leading off, it's our National League News and analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Patrick. Good to be here. We start in St. Louis, where outfielder Tyler O'Neill, good Canadian kid, by the way, was placed on the 10-day IL. He's got a right groin strain. Uh, that happened late last week or maybe early this week, depending on how you number your weeks. It was on Sunday, and the Cardinals also optioned uh, a right-hander, Jake Woodford, to the alternate training site. And they recalled a couple of guys, a uh, right-hander named Johan Oviedo. We'll talk about him in a minute. But also outfielder Lane Thomas, who looks like the beneficiary here. Yes, it's not clear how long O'Neill will be out. But fantasy managers will probably undoubtedly hope that he time off will let him reset his season. Prior to suffering the injury, he was 4 for 28 with a homer. Thomas could see some significant playing time while O'Neill is out. He's had a solid 38 at-bats in 2019, 
combined the 325 XBA with four homers. But 2020 was a different story. They're only managed a 187 XBA, just one homer in 36 at-bats. And Woodford has made two appearances in 2020, but control was a problem. He walked four, two, four batters in four innings. <laughs> Walking a batter in innings is not a way to get the manager on your side. Uh, I think this Lane guy might be a little interesting, but I'm leery of putting anything on the, uh, on the track record so far from the major leagues. It's uh, 38 at-bats, you said, in 2019, 36 uh, in 2020. So that's, what, 74 at-bats over two years. Um, I, I don't know. The fact that they called him up augurs well for him. He's, we've given him a 15% of the playing time in St. Louis. So if you're of a speculative turn of mind, maybe that's something you want to look at. Uh, what about this call-up, uh, Johan Oviedo, a right-handed pitcher? Oviedo is St. Louis's number 12 prospect with an 8D rating. He made his 2021 debut on April 11th, pitched 4.2 shutout innings, struck out four, yielded two hits, two walks. Uh, might be of some, some interest. 8D rating, I think, means a guy that has a projection of a ceiling of being a pretty solid regular. The D grade, however, means he has a, a less than outstanding chance of achieving that ceiling, so you might want to temper your expectations. Um, I think he could be of interest. Again, it's going to be pretty speculative, and I don't know that he'd be at the top of my fab list this weekend unless I had some issues on my pitching staff, especially in in deeper leagues. Uh, updating a previous report, Nick, uh, Jock Thompson reported that San Diego Padres left-hander Adrian Morahone was diagnosed with a left elbow and forearm strain after he was removed from his relief appearance on Sunday against Texas. Uh, these elbow injuries, never never a good thing. Yeah, as Josh Thompson says in covering this, no, never a good thing and, and always very worrisome. Uh, it looks like he, at this point, like he could miss a lot of time. Uh, we'll adjust it as, as we know more, but still taking things slowly with his own biceps and elbow issues and tossing simulated games to the alternate site. Dillinson Lamette seems likely to replace him in the rotation at some point very soon. Uh, now working in long relief, Ryan Weathers, seven strikeouts, two walks, one run allowed through six scoreless innings is an immediate option. And Mackenzie Gore is available from the alternate site. So we just need to stay on this and see what uh, what the developments are. And, of course, uh, Baseball HQ's team page for the Padres will keep track of that as well on those uh, roster depth charts. Very interesting feature and very useful at BaseballHQ.com. Uh, Moving along to Atlanta, left-hander Max Fried was placed on the 10-day injured list. He's got a strained right hamstring, so I suppose that could be considered good news. It's not an arm injury. Well, yes, at least it's not, uh, not an arm injury. He's struggled so far this year, and the hamstring injury is certainly not going to help things. Uh, followed the PQS 3 start with a PQS 1 and then a PQS 0, uh, and now is a 4.59 XERA. So not clear how much time he'll miss, not clear whether uh, he'll be replaced in the rotation. Um, Tucker Davidson was called up to replace him, and... Uh, Davidson started one game for Atlanta in 2020. That was a struggle, to say the least. Gave up three hits, putting a homer and four walks in 1.2 innings. He's had a lot more success in the minors. Uh, for example, he split 2019 between AA and AAA, wound up with a 2.15 ERA, over 129 innings pitched. So you can find more information on Davidson in the Daily Call-Ups column. 
I did look him up in the uh, Daily Call-Ups report. He was drafted in the 19th round by Atlanta in 2016, which our scouting team called a steal. His fastball's low to mid-90s, and he, but it'll get him deep into games, and that's a, that's a big thing. A couple of different breaking balls, a slider, and maybe uh, an even better curve. So there's some possibilities there for Davidson, although he hasn't got off to the auspicious start, as you mentioned. Uh, Atlanta also put on the IL outfielder Christian Pache. He's got a strained left groin. They recalled an outfielder named Guillermo Heredia to replace him on the roster. What goes on in that Atlanta outfield, which was a bit of a, of a sticky situation coming into the season? Now, so far, uh, so far this season, Pache seems to be overmatched. He's gone three for 30 with 13 strikeouts. Uh, it's not clear how much time he'll miss. Uh, Heredia gets his roster spot, but Inder Inciardi, is likely to get most of the playing time. Uh, Inciardi hasn't done much better than Pache so far this year, double in 11 at-bats, but had a nice four-year run from 2015 to 2018. Hasn't done much offensively since then. Um, 30-year-old Heredia, Atlanta will be his fifth team since making his major league debut with Seattle in 2016. Accumulated 1,007 major league at-bats prior to 2021 with a 245 XBA and a 52 expected power index. Yeah, he said it'd be a surprise to uh, if he were to prove to be a fantasy asset this year. Yeah, Phil Hertz covered that story for playing time today. And, you know, you look at those kind of numbers, there's two, two that jump out at me. A 52 expected power index is really low. That's uh, like 48 points below league average. Uh, league average is exactly 100. And the same for his expected batting average of 245. But the one that really jumps out at me, Nick, this guy's had five years in the big leagues and he's played for five different teams. Uh, can't, can't hold a job. Yeah, right. That that does tell you something, doesn't it? If he keeps moving from one team to another, there's enough in there to keep him on a on a on a bench spot, maybe. But as a regular, you go. Eh. Everybody says maybe not. <laughs> well, as in the midst of our parade of injuries, we have a good news story coming out of Atlanta. They have got some tremendous outings from the young pitcher Huascar Inoa. Yeah, Huascar Inoa. Elaine Leonardis covered this one and. Oscar, I know he says, is named after one of the last rulers of the Incan Empire, and since getting a crack at the fifth spot in the rotation, he has been nothing if not regal. Five hits, one earned run, two walks, 15 strikeouts, and 11 innings pitched. Uh, add one inning pitch he threw in relief, and he's been truly dominating hitters. And what's more, those command metrics are supported by a 15.2% swinging strike rate and a 35% ball rate. Um, an explosive fastball, 96 velocity, Solid slider, 10th overall in vertical movement uh, versus average so far in 2021, just two spots behind Tyler Glass now. Uh, that's all very exciting. But the question is, can we expect him to keep a spot in the rotation? Uh, and if so, for how long? Hey, Nick, I have a question. Yes. Can we expect Inoa to keep a spot in the rotation? And if so, for how long? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The first four spots in the Atlanta rotation are currently manned by Max Fried, Charlie Morton, Ian Anderson, and Drew Smiley. A performance rise, most of those pitchers have reasonably high expectations pinned to them. Only Smiley is projected to have an ERA over four, though it's entirely possible he could beat his current 4.6 ERA projection if he can maintain his velocity gains from 2020, and currently he's just a tick under that. It's too early to read much into, well, anything, but Interesting to note that Smiley has so far all but abandoned the successful cutter from last year, a 17.8% usage a year ago, only 3.8% usage this season. And he's basically been going with just four seamers and curves. 
And while his command metrics have been stellar, one walked 11 strikeouts in 11 innings pitched, his batted ball figures have not. 61.3% hard hit rate, bottom 7th percentile, and in spite of a favorable hit rate, uh, in any case, his biggest challenge will be to stay healthy, and his track record there isn't so great. Only exceeded 100 innings pitched three times in his nine-year Major League career. Uh, assuming he does stay intact, Mike Soroka will presumably claim the fifth spot once he comes off the IL, but his return from last year's ruptured Achilles tendon has been slowed by recent shoulder inflammation. He'd been shut down for two weeks, so set his expected return to sometime in May. And now, as we said, Max Fried is, is headed for the IL. So, Inoa may have another month to prove himself, currently outperforming his XERA quite a bit. 0.75 ERA, 2.22 XERA, although I'll take that XERA anytime. I was going to say. Yeah, thanks in part to a very friendly 21% hit rate. The biggest concern moving forward is his regression to the established uh, minor league control command. Posted a subport R10.3% walk rate over 372 innings pitched. But that number may not be as damning as it first appears. 2019, he registered a 36% ball rate over 97 innings pitched, which according to much research from Stephen Nickran, should have resulted in an expected walk rate per nine somewhere between two and three, uh, two and 3.4, much better than the 4.16 he actually posted. So while he shouldn't be counted on to maintain his current 1.5 control, perhaps the regression won't be as harsh as expected. If he can approach a major league average walk rate while maintaining both an above-average strikeout rate and a ground ball lean, he could have enough skill to keep Kyle Wright and Bryce Wilson at bay. And add the Smiley and Soroka's health volatility, there's a path for his reign to continue well into 2021. And I think I'm going to hear some more about Huascar Enoa some more when I have part two of our expert interview with Jeff Zimmerman a little later in the show. Meanwhile, one of our favorite columns to discuss here at Baseball HQ Radio, Nick, is the Speculator column written by Ryan Bloomfield. And this week, he's using the new Baseball HQ metric QBAB, that's quality uh, bats on balls in play. And I wonder what uh, Ryan Bloomfield found here, uh, including about Paul Goldschmidt, whom I have on a roster. Well, you know, it was interesting. That was a very fascinating article that Ryan wrote about quality of, uh, of, of bats and balls in play and, and indicating that we can, our research shows that you can make some conclusions from very small samples, and that's exactly what he was doing. So what he said about Paul Goldschmidt at this point is, is not hitting home runs, but don't panic, he says. Um, a, a wonderful QBAB are tearing the cover off the ball, even if the surface stats don't show it yet. His hard contact is a great sign that the surgeon can remove bone spurs and his elbow are a thing of the past. Uh, and so certainly a good guy to take a look at. And don't drop him if he's on your roster. Well, yeah, I think you'd have to be kind of crazy to drop him uh, based on this short of a sample anyway. But uh, another prominent name in Ryan's list, uh, Colorado shortstop Trevor Story. Yeah, Trevor Story at this point uh, actually has the highest expected power index, 175 of any hitter who hasn't hit a home run yet. So maybe it's now a good time to try to buy to buy low on Trevor Story, although Colorado moves back at home this weekend, so uh, better happen soon. Uh, 
Nick, we had a question from my Twitter account, at Patrick Davitt. Uh, Ricky Lindsay asked uh, what we should make of Jonathan India after his hot start. He notes uh, that uh, Jonathan India had some pretty good prospect pedigree and showed some decent plate discipline in the minors, but this is the big leagues. Is the short sample, do you think, a fact or a fluke? Well, you know, we talked about him. Uh, he's been mentioned a couple of times on uh, in the, on the site this week. Uh, one of those occurred in Brad Coleman's uh, market overview column and looking at, uh, at whether you want to pick this guy up or not. Uh, he says that's exactly what your questioner said. A prime example of a young player with a good pedigree, 2018 first-round pick, who reportedly showed improvement during 2020 in the alternate site and then had a strong spring training. Right now, he's got a ridiculous hit rate, and that's what's spurring the smoking start. But the Reds were impressed enough during camp to rearrange their infield just to get his bat in the lineup, and that's a pretty good indication that fantasy competitors might want to uh, want to consider doing the same thing. He was also covered by Ray Murphy in a, uh, a fascinating column this, uh, just this Friday called 2021 Early Pop-Ups, uh, looking at a lot of players and what can we expect from them. And Ray says uh, the entire lineup has been scorching to start the season for the Reds, and as long as that continues, even if there's some regression for India, that won't likely threaten his job. Our projections suggest double-digit home runs and stolen bases, both in play, but he hasn't gotten there yet. Uh, right now, completely at the mercy of the uh, batted ball in play gods, and uh, they tend to not be kind over larger sample sizes. Expect some regression, certainly right in, in the near term. And I know there's been some coverage at the site of another hot start, uh, the recently promoted uh, Jazz Chisholm in Miami. Yeah, Jazz, Jazz Chisholm is a guy that... Uh, that you really should take a close look at. The guy has been as hot as he can be, but our projections for him are not good at all. Uh, this is a guy we're projecting to hit down around 200 by the end of the season, uh, and so now's a real good time to sell high on him. All right, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out this week with the National League News. We'll catch up with you again in seven days' time. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now let's turn to the American League and co-GM and columnist at BaseballHQ.com, Ray Murphy. Ray Murphy, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Busy week in the American League. The news is flowing. Let's get into it. Well, let's start in Toronto. We've been talking on and off, seems like all season, about the bullpen for the Blue Jays, and it looked like right-hander Julian Merriweather had taken over the role the Blue Jays put him on the IL on Wednesday with a left oblique strain. I was watching the game, and he was kind of rubbing his hip area as well, so maybe that kind of stretching uh, took place during that game. He only threw two pitches in a what would have been a safe situation. Uh, the Blue Jays called up a right-hander, Anthony Castro, from the alternate training site. Phil Hertz is covering all of this mishmash for playing time today. What's the latest in that ever-changing Toronto bullpen? As the bullpen turns, right? So just when, as you say, just when we thought that maybe there was some stability there and the roles were defined, we we lose Merriweather from the top of the bullpen. So, you know, now the question becomes who gets the next save opportunity? Is it Romano or is it Delise? And you know, what Phil points out in the write-up uh, correctly, I think, is that neither one of those two has been particularly sharp so far this year. Now, I was just going through the game logs while I was following up on that, and both are having control problems, but both were sort of concentrated in the first or second outing of the season. Both have stabilized a little bit, but uh, it's, you know, neither one is at peak form. So 
I sort of, if you're trying to figure out which one's getting the saves from here, I, I, I think I sort of come at this from the perspective of looking at the Jays' overall plan this offseason. They signed Yates because they didn't want Romano to be the closer. Then they went to Merriweather as the closer because they didn't want Romano to be the closer. They want him in the seventh and eighth inning. Sooner or later, I think we have to take the Jays at their, at their word that they want Romano in the seventh and eighth inning. So, you know, if I were speculating, I would probably lean toward Delise here. But, you know, you're local. Tell me what. Tell me if you think I'm reading the tea leaves correctly here. I think it's really hard to say. I do believe that you're correct in that. Uh, assuming that Romano is the guy they want to have a bit more flexibility with in the late innings, you know, the seventh, the eighth, maybe both sometimes, something like that. But uh, neither Dolis nor Romano has really shown. Uh, you mentioned uh, control problems, 23% walk rate for Dolis, 18 for Romano. That's simply not getting the job done. Now, things have settled out a bit, and you have to kind of give them a bit of a mulligan for that early, early part of the season. But, uh, you know, the Jays, I think, have aspirations this year, and they're not not going to have the luxury of being patient while they figure out if, you know, Dolis or Romano can finally get the ball over the plate. And if we lose a few, you know, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. I think they think they can make the playoffs. I think they might even think they uh, have a shot at winning the division. They've handled New York pretty, pretty readily so far this year. And they recalled this other guy, Anthony Castro, from the alternate training site. And we've already given him a few saves. With the relative struggles that Deleese and Romano have had, you have to look a little bit deeper. So that's when you get down to Castro and you know maybe David Phelps. Um, I don't think there's much beyond a swingman with Castro. You know, looking back at when he got called up last season when he was with Detroit, we tagged a seven C rating on him as a prospect, which tagged him as bullpen depth and, you know, sort of a 50% chance of being an average regular. But then, you know, as we've talked about a few times on the show, we sort of have to be open to guys doing surprising things this year. And in Castro's first outing for the Jays, he came up and threw two clean innings with a strikeout. So it's not going to take many more outings like that before he starts getting higher leverage work. Remains to be seen whether he can do that, of course. And David Phelps, despite his pretty good stuff, and he's got a fairly decent reputation as a relief pitcher over a fairly long period of time in Major League Baseball. He only has, I think, maybe 10 saves, not even in, in his Major League career, a lot of holds. And just the other night, he took a wicked line drive off his back, and I don't know if that's going to affect his immediate availability, so keep that in mind. I have David Phelps on a American League-only roster, and uh, it was kind of a speculative play, but I don't know that they think that much of him in that context, that they're going to be super excited about uh, letting David Phelps have the ball in the ninth inning either. So right now, I think it's all up in the air. I wish I had Romano. I wish I had Dolis. I have neither. So we're just going to have to move along and see what happens. Uh, and speaking of uh, moving along, in Minnesota, Andrelton Simmons, their newly acquired shortstop on the COVID-19 injured list on Wednesday, and they recalled outfielder Alex Kirilov. A lot of people getting excited about that, but they also brought up uh, JT Riddle, a shortstop from the alternate training site. What's going on in Minnesota, especially with regard to Kirilov? The news there with the uh, doubleheader with the Red Sox is you, gotta, you sort of got to read the fine print here. Riddle comes up as the replacement infielder for Simmons, which, of course, makes sense. Uh, Luis Arias, who had been filling in primarily at third base while Josh Donaldson was out. Donaldson's back. 
now. So Arias can move over to second and Jorge Blanco can go back to shortstop and Riddle becomes the extra middle infielder. Uh, Kirilov came up as well, as you said, but that was just as the 27th man for the doubleheader on Wednesday. So he was expected to get sent back out. Uh, but it's just a reminder that we're going to see Kirilov for good soon. I think that, you know, it, it actually is somewhat encouraging as a reminder of their plans that uh you know once the clock runs out on the service time games or if they get Kirilov two weeks in AAA or whatever their plan is, we're gonna see him before too long as the regular left fielder here. Yeah, it looks very much like a playing time shenanigan. That was the analysis that Rick Green had as well. So uh, if you're kind of disappointed that Kirilov is up and down in a single day, don't be because as soon as that magic day passes, I think Kirilov will be up to stay, as you say. Uh, in Los Angeles, a lot of news for the Angels, none of it too particularly good. Uh, they placed third baseman Anthony Rendon, their big offseason signing. He's on the I.L., and this is not the COVID IL, which is indefinite and the guy can come back anytime. This is a strained groin, and that's always tr- a trouble for a hitter. A jock Thompson for playing time today wrote this up, and he called it a high-impact situation, and I don't think they come a lot higher. What's the story in Anaheim? Yeah, so the early optimism was that Rendon was just day-to-day, but then they decided to shut him down for the 10 days, and now it's fingers crossed that he'll only be out for the 10 days, but we know how those things go. You know, wouldn't be at all surprising to see us get to this weekend at day five or six of the DL stint, and then they say he's not progressing as fast as we hope, but that's <laughs> a little bit of foreshadowing, I think. Uh, but for however long he's out, it's going to be uh, either Jose Ro- Ro- Rojas or Jack Mayfield who gets the, uh, the the fill-in work. And so far, it seems like it's been Rojas, um, it, who is interesting in the sense that there's sort of two things in play here. Sort of historically, uh, you know, he, he's gotten off to a, a very slow start here. He's, uh, I think it calculates out to one for 18 so far, uh, which, you know, would suggest that he's going to disappear the minute that Rendon is even 75% ready to go. Uh, but, you know, if you look a little bit deeper into the, uh, into the minor league stats, yeah, there, there's a legit bat there. He had a 932 OPS with 31 home runs and, and decent plate control over, uh, you know, a full season triple a. And I guess that was 2019 now back in when triple a, uh, last existed. And he also had a good spring with, uh, 10 walks and seven strikeouts. So it seems like the, the swing and miss shouldn't be a huge problem. And if he gets over the, you know, the initial adjustment period here, he should be able to hold the fort for a week or however long it's uh, necessary here. And hopefully not much longer than that. They also called up a uh, uh, Jack Mayfield, whom Jock Thompson describes as a glove first infield utility type guy at Glove first is uh, maybe overstating the case. Uh, he's a 170 batting average over 106 at-bats in the big leagues. He'll share some time, but I think until uh, Rendon gets back, certainly uh, we, we should expect that Jose Rojas will get a chance to show the Angels what he's got. And I don't know that he's going to stick, like you said, when... Uh, when Anthony Rendon is back, that's going to be it for him. But uh, he, this, is a, this is a chance for him to, to lay down some some uh, foundation for future work, I guess we could say. Uh, staying in the uh, Los Angeles Angels, an MRI has revealed that outfielder Dexter Fowler tore his anterior cruciate ligament. I was watching that game. It was a very strange thing, Ray. He was just running into second base, and instead of sliding, he did that thing where they just stop while standing and fell down. 
and that was it. Uh, it was just like his cleat grabbed at the ground or something like that. Anyhow, he's uh, going to miss the rest of the year. He'll need surgery, six to nine months of recovery, Jock says, in playing time today. So what are the implications with Dexter Fowler gone for the year? Yeah, so there's short, sort of a short and long-term picture here. For the short term, they've taken Jared Walsh and he's going to, for lack of a better term, masquerade as a right fielder, uh, because I think that's about all he's capable of doing, you know, first baseman by trade, but you know, the opening is in right field now. So they're going to move him out there. And that really means more playing time at first base DH for two holes at first base and Otani at DH that they can play there every day. Uh, I, I don't think it's in the angels best interest to have a pools in the lineup every day, but you know, they're paying them a lot of money. So they're going to do that for the short term I mean, for, you know, somewhere down the road, the, the longer term answer here is, you know, they're two kid outfielders, Brandon March and Joe Adele. We would expect to see at least one of them in the majors sometime this summer, if not both. And that would put, push Walsh back, to, back into the infield. And I mean, the way Otani is hitting, you would certainly expect that it would be Pujols who would be the playing time loser there. But you know, that domino is a little bit further away and we'll have to see how those guys do in triple a once that season starts. But, it's a short-term playing opportunity for Pujols, but unless he reverses the you know several-year decline that we've been watching, then I would think his days are numbered. As you as you were sort of saying earlier, the Angels are another team that has some aspirations of going some places this year, and I, I they're not going to be able to afford to be able to be patient for patient's sake. Yeah, the interesting thing about the Adele Marsh situation is that everybody thought it was going to be Adele who would be the first guy to get called up, even though his uh, last time in the major leagues was less than stellar. But I've read now that Brandon Marsh might be the guy who gets the call ahead of Adele. What have you heard? I, it seems that way to me, too. And, you know, we're working in the dark a little bit because we saw both of these guys in spring training, but now we have this sort of... You know, whatever's going on at minor league camp or the alternate site right now is sort of like the Apollo 13 reentry silence where we don't know, you know, how these two guys are you know, pro- pro- progressing. But it was very clear after Adele's struggles in the majors last year that he has some things to work on and needs some time to work on them. And I think the Angels were taking the long view there and being clear that they were going to give him the time to do that, both at the alternate site and presumably in the, the upcoming AAA season. So I, I, it's going to be on both guys, I think, to establish their timeline. But I, I do think it's entirely possible that Marsh is first and Adele gets a good long cup of coffee in AAA to sort of re- reestablish his foundation before he comes up for good. Yeah, I think they're going to be particularly interested to see if he can get the swing and miss under control at AAA before they commit to bringing him up again. I think longer term, Adele is the is the better talent with the higher ceiling, but gosh, he, he, he needs to make some more contact. Uh, in the early going, Ray, I noticed that uh, Juan Lagares was playing uh, some outfield with Fowler out, but he's now gone on the 10-day injured list as well. And listen to this, they recalled John Jay to take Lagares' roster spot, and then they scratched Justin Upton from the lineup a, a day or two ago with back tightness, and your new Angels uh, left fielder, Mr. John Jay. <laughs> Any interest here? Yeah, I'd be more interested in the founding father, I think. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, the Federalist paper guy. Yeah, yeah exactly. No, I mean, this is, you know, it, it, Jay has been around for a long time and back at his quote unquote peak, whatever it was, there was a fair amount of contact and line drives and a smattering of stolen bases, but he's 36 now. So that's long gone. And, you know, he still puts bat on ball enough to, 
you know, carry a decent batting average, but there's not you know, anything good happening when bat hits ball here. So I will, I will pass on John Jay if he ends up being uh, in the lineup semi-regularly for the next couple of weeks. The Detroit Tigers, speaking of uh, old DH first baseman types as we were a moment ago with Albert Pujols, uh, Miguel Cabrera was put on the 10-day injured list with a bicep strain. They recalled infielder Renato Nunez, Tom Kephart, for playing time today on this story. What's going on in Detroit? Yeah, so Kep points out that you know his initial take on this was a, a platoon of Renato Nunez, who they, of course, brought over from Baltimore, and that, that he thought that Nunez would make a nice platoon partner with Nomar Mazzara, who was, for lack of a better description, probably the fourth outfielder there. It, it's tough to tell in the uh, early going when they were moving playing time around between Victor, Victor Reyes and uh, Jacoby Jones and a couple Robbie Grossman, et cetera. But Mazzara looked like he was basically the fourth outfielder. So Kep squinted and sort of thought that Nunez and Mazzara would make a nice platoon, which makes a lot of sense. Nunez is a bad side platoon guy for most of the success he's had in his career so far. And Mazzara hits from the left and occasionally gets a hold of one. So there was some logic to that. And, you know, since then, Nunez, though, has gone out in his first uh, – First four games as a Tiger, gone and hit two home runs. So, you know, that's a good way to blow up a platoon is to say, if every day you're in the lineup, you hit a home run, they're going you know, to play you more than 25% of the time. So, remains to be seen if Nunez can uh, can, can keep that going, of course. But, uh, you know, he's, he's staking a claim to a little more than bad side platoon work. Right now, we're projecting him with 25% of the DH playing time, which is... 25% is generally what we would give a bad side platoon guy, but that's just until Cabrera comes back. So it's a little more than that in the short term, but we're going to have to wait and see what he uh, what, what he actually does with the opportunity. And then not to be outdone, Mazzara actually hit a home run the other night too. So this new little platoon thing is actually working pretty well for the Tigers. And meanwhile, clouding the outfield situation, I think, is the fact that uh, this Rule 5 guy, Akil Badu, has come out of the gate to... Uh, to say that he's been hot is maybe going to be understating the situation. This guy's doing everything out there. I think his OPS, the last time I checked, was kind of in the 1300 range. Yeah, he's he's one of the better stories. And you're right, I didn't mention him in my around the Tiger outfield, but that's basically because his playing time has been entrenched because all he does is hit home runs, which he uh, was again is a good way to stay in the lineup. You know, I've, I've actually caught him uh, a couple of times uh, just jumping around games uh, on MLB TV and. I th I gotta ch click and check this, but uh, you know, the thing it was impressive to me is yeah, three of his four home runs have gone opposite field, and he's just got this you know use all field swing, and I've seen him a couple of times just reach out for a fastball on the outer half of the plate and just you know flick it. You know he's a left-handed hitter, and he just flicks it to left field, and it just goes over the fence. It's unbelievable. I've seen it like I've seen at least two of these three opposite field home runs, and you know it's. You know, he's not a big burly guy by any means. He's got that wiry strength and you can tell he's got really strong wrists and he just, you know, he just pops the ball up and I guess maybe he's got the uh, Detroit air currents working in his favor or something, but, uh, <laughs> you know, 10 hits and 27 at bats and four of them have left the yard. That's a good way to uh, start your career as a 22 year old. Yeah, and I think he had 40 at-bats in spring training. He had five home runs, like four stolen bases, something like that, and was hitting the ball all over the place. And I I rostered him as a reserve pick late in the draft in Tout Wars in the American League only because I, I just had read some good things. And I like those Rule 5 guys because they have that little bit extra 
uh, opportunity because they can't be sent down. They have to stay on the roster all year or they have to be returned to the team from whom they were claimed. And I think that's an advantage, especially in a situation like they have in Detroit, where it's not like they're overloaded with talent and they have every reason to look at a guy, especially when he gets off to such a hot start. We have him right now for 50% of the outfield playing time, and I think that's a floor rather than a ceiling. Yeah, if he keeps hitting, he's going to stay in the lineup. And like, I, I, I can tell you one thing for sure is he's not getting sent back. He's staying with the Tigers in the rule five, as a Rule 5 guy for the full year at this point. So uh, there's uh, they've definitely found something here. And yeah, you're right. I, it was... Um, yeah, th- th- there's a note from Stephen Nickrand here that he uh, you know flagged him for that spring training start that you were talking about, and he hit my radar screen in like mid March when uh, Kep assigned some playing time to him, and you know it, it's not unusual to see uh, you know or in, in the early spring a Rule Five guy get assigned some token playing time, but I had to check in with Kep because. You know, if he, if they really think he's going to make the team, that's when I have to go create a projection on the site for him. And you know, Kep was like, "Well, if he keeps doing this," and I I kind of looked, and that was sort of the first time the name came across my radar, probably on you know March twelfth or something like that. But he's uh, all, he has certainly uh, answered every question and uh, passed every test to to date. And we should point out that in his minor league career, I think his problem was making contact, but he seems to have addressed that. He's a 70% contact rate, which is not great, but it's certainly well within league norms nowadays to have th- strike out about 30% of the time. And he has a pretty good eye at the plate. He draws a fair amount of walks, and I'll issue the caveat here. So far this year, he's only walked in 3% of his plate appearances, which is below what we were expecting. He's usually uh, close to double digits is what we're expecting. But if he manages to put all that stuff together, you know, th- there is definitely something interesting here. Yes, I'm, I know people are going to say a 50% home run per fly ball rate. He can't sustain that. Yes, we understand that he's not going to, you know, have a 50% home run per fly ball rate, especially in Detroit. But the fact is, this guy seems to be a pretty good hitter. And a pretty good hitter usually has a place to play in a team that's not really full of pretty good hitters. Yeah, for sure. He's, you know, the the early season stats are just so fun to look at. On As you say, there's a lot of noise in there with the 50% home run per fly and, you know, with a 40% uh, batting average of balls in play isn't going to, uh, isn't going to sustain either. That's uh, that's an each or a like level. But, on the, but on, the, on the other token, you know, you can see the 370 batting average, but he's got a 364 expected batting average. So, Okay, yeah, and he's got a thirty-five percent line drive rate. If he hits, you know, if that regresses even down to the the high twenties, he's going to sustain, you know, some very nice stats. So for sure, there's regression here, but uh, you know, there's all there also seem to be some foundational skills of power and speed. And if he, as you say, if he can continue to hold even that seventy percent contact rate to put the ball in play enough to let the power and speed play, there's real value here. We haven't talked about Brent Honeywell of the Tampa Bay Rays so far this year. Of course, he came back and had a nice outing the other day, but Tampa has now also recalled left-hander Josh Fleming from the team's alternate training site. He got called up on Tuesday. Chris Olson covers the Rays for playing time today. How does Josh Fleming fit into what is an increasingly malleable Rays pitching staff? Yeah, malleable is one way to describe it, but you know, I think another key consideration for for Fleming in particular is that uh, you know these guys are guys who stand on the mound for Tampa are kind of dropping like flies too. So you know, there's an opportunity here, and it might be more than just the uh, you know the token start cup of coffee. Uh, you know, he had a good first start. Uh, what? 
threw 84 pitches, left the game trailing one to nothing. Uh, you know, he throws a sinker, so we, we expect a good ground ball raid with a 91, mon- 92 mile an hour kind of thing. Uh, but the the problem is sort of in Tampa behind glass now. Uh, everyone is either struggling or hurt in the rotation. So um, Fleming kind of replaced Brett Honeywell, who was up for that one start cup of coffee. Uh, but you know, between the Chris Archers and Rich Hills and all these guys who the, the, the Rays are relying on behind glass now in that sort of mix and match mode that you were talking about. The other thing to remember is the bullpen is really beat up too. So, you know, we're seeing glass now go deeper into games than I think we expected. He's already throwing a hundred plus pitches and seven and two thirds innings. So a guy like Fleming who can maybe give them five to six innings, once every time through the rotation rather than the three or four they're getting from Archer and Waka and Rich Hill and those guys, it's going to be valuable because as much as the Rays like to mix and match, they can't do it absolutely every night. Somebody's got to give them some decent innings besides glass now and Fleming might be quickly becoming the next most likely option there. Yeah, uh, Chris Olson pointed out that when you look down the list of the uh, ERAs amongst those uh, Ray's starters, uh, the list goes like this, 648, 7, 623, 720, uh, 9 if you count Colin McHugh, and then 046 for Glasnow, who seems to be one of these things is not like the other. So it looks like there'll be opportunities for Josh Fleming. I, I'm curious to see what the fab situation is going to be when people start bidding on Josh Fleming this weekend, especially in American League only leagues. It could be a really good gamble, I suspect. Uh, Moving over to the Astros, good news out of Houston for them. Nobody's dead, but uh, the COVID outbreak has hit them. Uh, Altuve, Bregman, Alvarez, and Maldonado. Gosh, if that was something that happened to your fantasy team, you might put your head in the oven. Uh, They all go to this COVID injured list. It's an indefinite sort of thing. They can call them back any time. There's no 10-day minimum or anything. And here's who they called up. Taylor Jones, Alex Degotti, Garrett Stubbs, Ronnie Dawson, none of whom I've, I confess I've really ever heard of, and Abraham Toro, who actually I kind of like. Uh, really hard to know what to do here, Ray, especially in leagues with weekly moves. What are we to make of all this, according to Jock Thompson? Yeah, it's it's tough. Uh, it's going to be a more than day-to-day proposition. We saw the... You know, we saw this happen with the Nationals, but they had the benefit of most of the games while the half the team was quarantined were canceled, and the Astros are continuing to play with. Uh, I think a shortened deck doesn't even really do it justice for what they the caliber of players they've lost here. Uh, but you know, Jock, I, Jock didn't make any playing time adjustments because we don't expect any of be anybody to be out for the long term. We may get some info over the next couple of days as to which ones of these are positive tests and which ones are close contacts and the return timeline and criteria does vary for those. So there, you know, it's worth monitoring the news day to day. Like you said, this is not a blanket 10 day thing. It's a, you know, it's a, they could be back. I I think for the close contacts with a couple of negative tests, it could be as as little as seven days, but uh, it's going to be a, uh, it's going to be a long weekend for owners of the Astros watching those zeros come in, I think. And, uh, you know, it might be a place to spot start some uh, some pitchers facing this diminished lineup. I, uh, I DFS'd Michael Fulmer the other night against them, uh, against this uh, AAA lineup, and he threw, uh, was it five and two-thirds scoreless or something like that? 
Yeah, it's a, it's going to be a tough call to make, I think, for as I mentioned, for weekly league players because you're going to have to really keep an eye on the news to figure out do you reactivate all your uh, IL uh, COVID guys from Houston or don't you? Because if you make the wrong call, if you activate them and they don't play, then you lose all that all that production. And if you do activate them and they don't play, you lose all that production. So it's it's a really tough place to be. Uh, I don't envy anybody who's got any of those guys. And I don't, so I can say that with uh, a certain amount of comfort. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, Stephen Nickran's Batters Buyers Guide column. He was looking at uh, some early batter observations. He did the same thing with the starting pitchers. And uh, some interesting names from the American League. Uh, this is a something where Stephen looks at guys who've had unusually good, strong performances, and a couple of them are in Minnesota. We talked about Luis Arias. Yeah, Arias has taken the playing time that was available to him, you know, in left field when they sent down Kirilov and then in third base when they sent down, when, when Donaldson went on the DL and now uh, he'll continue to play as Simmons is out. Uh, but, you know, in between the multi-positional work he's doing, he's actually delivering at the plate too. He's hitting 320 with an 880 OPS in his first 25 at bats, uh, headlined by a, a massive 35% line drive rate. Uh, at a nice 93%, excuse me, 93.7 average exit velocity. So, you know, a lot of balls barreled up, hit hard. Uh, and he's continuing to maintain his uh, his usual play, pay, play patience. Uh, so with that second, third positional eligibility and that sort of batter profile, and then I think, no, he hasn't picked up outfield yet, but he might through the course of the season. Uh, so there's, uh, you know, between the versatility, the nice play patience, and the plethora of line drives, that's a nice skill set. Also in Minnesota, Byron Buxton, Stephen says, this could be the year. We've been waiting for so many years for that $30 breakout. And and uh, Stephen says, could be on a path towards just such a thing. Yeah, this, he, he points out that the stat cast indicators are, you know, positively brilliant for Buxton so far, a 97.2 mile per hour exit velocity, barreling the ball more than 25% of the time. Plus he's walking, which, uh, you know, was always a part of his game, game that was there, but it was kind of obscured by the, uh, by the holes in his swing that have since been plugged up. So, I mean, he's batting 469 and 30 at bats with, you know, five homers already. Uh, if I could complain, he's only got one stolen base, but you know, I'll, I'll, I'll overlook that for now. He's been, <laughs> it's really, really good and obviously the question that can only be asked over time only answered over time is whether he can stay healthy in the lineup because i think we've established that the bat has arrived catching is really hard to find especially in american league only formats but just generally and look at gary sanchez showing some signs steven says he could be in for a big rebound yeah, it's interesting. You know, micro samples, of course, we're only talking about 24 at bats, uh, but he's hitting 292 with a 954 OPS. Uh, and the the best part is not just the what happens when he puts the bat on the ball, because we know that he's always been good in that regard. But the fact that he's putting this bat the bat on the ball more often, he's struck out, you know, he's got a 79% contact rate, which is, you know, seven strikeouts in 34 at bats. I mean, we can live with that. That's, uh, you know, 79% contact is, you know, above the league average at this point. And, you know, it just means that many more, more balls in play. And we've long, long known, like I said, that when Sanchez puts the ball in play, good things happen. So going from a number, you know, a contact rate that was, you know, 
meandered below 60% last year and has been, uh, you know, been in the 60s before that. 79 is, uh, you know, a career high level. And even if he, even if he keeps that somewhere in the 70s, I think that's point that makes him plenty playable at the catcher position. Makes him really playable because he's especially dangerous with all those home runs. Nobody's ever doubted the power. The problem has always been he just swings and misses so much that it's hard for him to do anything else but the power, and it even restricts the power because he's just not putting the bat on the ball often enough. This is something that really could be a, a huge gain for Gary Sanchez on fantasy rosters, that's for sure. And uh, Stephen also mentioned, uh, speaking of the Astros, Yulieski Gurriel off to a blistering start. Yeah, Gurriel is you know practically a freak of nature at this point. He's 37 now and is just kind of doing the same thing he always does. And he was practically free in drafts this spring. His ADP was I, I you know below 300, so you know around 20 20 or a later pick or uh, you know probably five dollar and under in your auction league. And he just is you know the the embodiment of the the, the professional hitter I guess, but often you know even beyond that a three you know hitting three fifty five so far in uh, you know thirty something at bats making contact almost all the time it's just a remarkable skill set ninety percent contact rate is just about unheard of in this day and age and you know it, his power isn't fantastic you know he's he's sort of long been a a loser on our expected home run metric where we use uh exit velocity and launch angle to figure out what a player's expected home run number to be uh you know going back to that 30 uh 31 home run season in 2019 we kind of red flagged that and said that he wasn't anywhere near that good a power hitter but when he's putting the bat on the ball 90 percent of the time and holding his batting average up as high as it is you don't need the 30 home runs to be valuable. He could be valuable if he hits 18 home runs. And, you know, that's entirely within, within reason. That's a, you know, this, this is a, uh, especially if you found yourself in a position where you rostered one too many swing and miss guys. And like everyone else, your batting average is floating around 215 or 220 in your league right now. Then this is a, this is a nice solve for that. If you can, if you can scoop him up or go out and get him. And before we go, Ray, I'm very curious to see what you think of your mean Mercedes, the guy in uh, <laughs> in Chicago, the DH there, who's off to just a redonkulous start, and he got covered in uh, Stevens' column as well. But mix and match your opinions, Stevens' opinions. What's going on with your mean Mercedes? Yeah, it's really interesting. He's another guy that I like. I was talking about with Badu, sort of popped up on my radar in mid-March when the projection system said I needed to create a projection for him. And because he's a catcher and I pulled out his, you know, sort of, sort of MLE projection from what we would have converted his 2019 minor league stats to as, as a starting point, that actually wasn't bad. It was, you know, it was part-time work, but there was, it, there was, it showed there was some power in that bat. And I, I didn't roster him anywhere, but it, it sort of just caught my eye. And obviously he's been really, you know, sm just smacking the ball and, uh, does it with a, uh, shall we say, a particularly recognizable body type? So you always recognize when it's him on the highlights. Um, <laughs> we always catch his eye. But uh, Brent and I are actually writing something uh, that in the GM's office uh, th this week about some of these guys, the Bedus and Mercedes, and these out of nowhere guys. We're going to do a sort of a introductory piece or a why some of these things might be sustainable uh, take. So I, I, I actually have to write up Mercedes today for that. So uh, I will. I, I'm going to take a deeper dive, but. Uh, you know, it's uh, the, the the history as I saw it in March said the 
hours should play. And I actually saw a, a note from uh, Craig Mish with who covers the uh, cover, covers the Marlins for one of the South Florida papers. He had a story this week that the uh, the Marlins were trying really really hard this offseason to upgrade their catching from Jorge Alfaro and were tried very hard to get Mercedes from the White Sox, which I thought was interesting. Um, so maybe maybe among some of the scouting circles or some of the, some of the other teams knew what the White Sox had or the White Sox did too. I was kind of on Zach Collins to sort of be this guy when um, you know I, I thought he might have an opportunity here, but Mercedes has just sort of supplanted him and run with this opening. It's it's pretty cool to see. But we should point out that if you want to put a, a few extra fab dollars into your budget for a shot at your mean Mercedes. Uh, in the expectation that he's going to catch. I don't think he's going to catch. Well, uh, that's he's, right. He's not a good catcher, and and uh, if Miami was looking at him, it would have been strictly for his bat. Uh, I've been listening to podcasts, and I've been reading about uh, Mercedes for a little while now, and, and pretty much everybody agrees. If this guy sticks in the, in the big leagues, he may play a little outfield, kind of lumbering around out there, but the chances of him being a big league catcher are somewhere between slim, unlike him, and none. Slim, unlike him, indeed. Yeah, and you know, for for the and for the White Sox, you know, they they also are not going to find themselves likely in a situation where there's an emergency, and they even get pressed into going down that road because they have Grandal and Zach Collins, both of whom are ahead of him on the depth chart, and uh, I think and could find a catcher off the scrap heap if they needed to in short order. So, yeah, that's a good point, and you know, he is. You know, let's not forget the pedigree either. There's there's a little pop in that bat, but you know, we had him as a six B prospect back in uh, 2019, and he's age 28 now. So this is not a, uh, you know, th- this is a Bull Durham prospect, not a, uh, not the next great power hitter. And I said this was that was going to be the last thing we talked about, but I forgot to mention that there was a really interesting comment in the comment section after Stephen's article talking about Byron Buxton, and this is somebody who lives in Minnesota, uh, calls himself Stunt Monkeys underscore D. I don't even know what that means, but uh, somebody up there in Minnesota, and he says you should buy on Buxton, and the reason is he altered his hitting approach in 2020, this writer says, from sitting on fastball and trying to react to off-speed pitching to sitting on the off-speed pitches and reacting to the fastball. And he says Buxton learned to rely on his hand speed to get to fastballs and has been really able to hammer some off-speed pitches ever since. And this raises an interesting point that we talk about a lot at Baseball HQ, which is when you see a big improvement in performance, sometimes you have to look under the hood and see, has this guy changed something about how he's going about his job? Yeah, and the power increase, you know, checks out with what the commenter said because you know the, the power really jumped last year. He hit 13 home runs and right. you know, 130 at bats last year. And I, as I remember correctly, as I jumped to the monthly split, yeah, I mean, he had eight, eight home runs in September. You know, after after five in August, so you know it was really uh, if he was adjusting or you know getting that adjustment and learning to trust that approach, as you say, as the season went on, the results really bore that out. So I'm not at all surprised to see the power continue this year. And certainly the explanation makes some logical sense. My biggest question still here is, are we going to see him manage to stay, stay in the lineup to get the 500 plus at bats? Well, interestingly, this uh, same comment included a mention of that. He said the team has been asking Buxton to take fewer chances in the outfield while he's playing defensively. So they don't want him running into walls. They're telling him, I guess, you know, let the ball hit the wall, play it off the wall. 
throw it into second and we'll live with the we'll live with the double rather than you crashing into the wall we give up a triple and we lose you for four weeks that kind of thing and and something else that popped in my mind when i was reading this is sit off speed react to the fastball reminds me of another hitter who did pretty well henry aaron was asked do you look for the fastball or do you look for the curve and how does it change with your situation he said every pitch in my career i look for curveball and the, and the interviewer said, weren't you worried that they were going to get a fastball by you? And he just grinned at him. He said, nobody throws a fastball by me. <laughs> what, what a gift to have, right? And But you yeah. know, Buxton seems to have figured, sort of figured out the same thing. Uh, it, but you know, back on the uh, on the protecting himself in the field point, you know, I, I think the Twins can tell him that all the time. I was watching, uh, watching, watching one of the games with the Red Sox this week, and uh, one of the Red Sox had a home run the dead center dead center field that got out. Uh, I think it actually bounced off the top of the wall, and Buxton was going up, getting for go, going for it, and didn't get it. But I wasn't even watching the ball at that point. I was just watching Buxton's two feet hit the ground and making sure that like he actually landed on his feet and didn't go down in a heap. So that <laughs> might just be that might just be the way we have to live live for a while here. He's coming up to that part of his career when he's going to be looking for a big contract, so he has that little extra incentive to stay on the field maybe as well. Uh, Ray, thanks a million for helping us out this week. Very interesting as always, and we'll catch up with you again next week for uh, General Hospital. <laughs> Sounds good, PD. Thanks as always. Ray Murphy is a co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com and covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. And since Ray and I spoke, we got news that the Jays have placed Saves' favorite Jordan Romano on the IL with what the team calls right ulnar neuritis, an inflammation of the nerve in the throwing elbow. That doesn't sound good. I contacted Ray, who says we're going to move Rafael Dolis up to the top position in the Jays' bullpen committee. The next in line is probably Tim Meza, who has made four appearances this season, all in the seventh inning or later, but none in high leverage. Trent Thornton could also figure in. He's had six innings and four appearances, four strikeouts, three walks, four hits, and two earned runs. Not a lot to see there. David Phelps might be worth a stash. Five and a third, two unearned runs, five strikeouts, two walks, five hits. But he has a pretty significant fly ball tilt so far this year, which might not be optimal for the band box in Dunedin, Florida, where they play. A speculative pick here might be right-hander Anthony Castro, a waiver's claim from Detroit in the offseason, has a very limited major league track record, just one inning in 2020, and seven relatively unimpressive years in the minors. But he was terrific in spring training, 193.064 for decimals, 15 strikeouts in nine and a third, and he didn't look out of place when the Jays put him in in the seventh and eighth innings in a recent tight game against the Yankees. 19 pitches, 15 strikes, one strikeout, no walks, three ground outs, two pop-up outs, and a ground ball base hit. Next up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Jeff Zimmerman, who writes regularly for Rotographs and appears weekly on the Launch Angle podcast. Jeff, welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me. Let's I love talking baseball. Another of your can't-miss regular articles that I literally never miss at Rotographs is Mining the News, where you go through the latest happenings, provide fantasy analysis, and comment on those happenings. How often does this extremely helpful commentary appear? It kind of depends. Um, during the season, it's not as much. I kind of find there's stuff's changing a, a lot, and um, people are kind of focused on it a little bit more. Um, so I, I'm kind of spending my time looking at some of that, like, um, lineup changes, but during the off season, it's pretty much all I work on. It's like trying to figure out, Oh, was someone hurt? What was the deal there? Are they adding a new pitch? Um, what's going to be the 
you know, manager's approach to his bullpen, just kind of trying to pick out little nuggets that um, other people have. And a lot of times it's a lot of reading. Like sometimes I'll read God, like 30, 40 articles and may come up with like two pieces of useful information. And that's kind of what I, why I called it mining the news. It's like, it's not the obvious stuff that everyone's like, Oh, so-and-so has Tommy John surgery. Like I'm not even going to include that. It's going to be maybe more of like, who's going to come take their place or something like that. It's going to be looking into just like that next step or two down. In the April 7th edition, you had some ominous news for fantasy managers who have Andrew Benintendi of Kansas City on their rosters. What was that news item about and what was your analysis? Yeah, he was um, just not able to hit pitches in the strike zone. The team had kind of noticed it. And it's one of those deals, like if I went through the stats, I would have found it. But it's nice that, you know, the article pointed it out to me and he's just been horrible about it. I mean, it's comparable to Joey Gallo or Miguel Sano type level. And I mean, he just doesn't have their powers. So I think he's someone that you really might need to be benching until he figures some things out here. And like I said, it's just not been good with him at the plate right now. Same kind of deal for the target of some heavy preseason speculation, the Giants' Aaron Sanchez. What's the story there? He just cannot keep his... um his velocity up. I don't know if he's going to have to go to the bullpen, but he lost about three miles an hour um, over his first start, you know, kind of starting about 92, 93 miles an hour. And at the end he was under 90. And this is still off of a average three mile an hour decline from the season before. So I don't, we'll see if he can pitch this way, but usually it's usually just, I mean, generally it's not as effective the three mile an hour decline usually is the equivalent of about, I mean, a worsening of a 0.75 um, on his ERA. So projections are going to be a little bit lower on him. And also with that heavy decline, he just may be hurt. So it's someone I just don't trust. I kind of thought like, oh, there's a chance he's coming here. He showed some signs a couple times, but he just someone I'm just going to stay away from right now. He's so kind of borderline anyway that I'll take a chance on another borderline pitcher that maybe um, have a little bit more upside. You had a brief about Joey Votto of Cincinnati hitting a ball with an exit velocity of 114 miles an hour. It certainly doesn't sound Votto-ish of late. Uh, in fact, you noted it had been six years since Votto last hit a ball that hard. And then you said, it looks like with a new approach, his power is back. Uh, that seems like an undue level of confidence based on a single batted ball, but what else is going on there, Jeff? It started last year. Um, there was like four or five games he sat out and he changed his approach. He kind of had his kind of crouched down, heavy kind of contact one without a lot of power, and he moved to kind of a stand-up one where he gets more powers, but it's a little bit more swing and miss. And from that point, he I noticed it. I mean, they had brought up, and I noticed that over the offseason, and he's kept that same approach, and he's just getting a lot more power. But like I said, you're going to have to deal with probably a little bit lower batting average with the um, strikeouts. But so far, I mean, it's Votto's been okay. I wouldn't say he's like been a, lights out like Castellanos, but he hasn't really kind of been hurting a team, and I think people kind of expected more of a downturn, and I'm sure at some point he's going to end up on the IL. It's kind of what he does. but um. Yeah, the power's kind of been there. He's just not getting in this batting average up enough and um, not walking in 
as much as he had historically. So he's probably been hurting people in um, OBP leagues, but I think that was kind of expected. So we'll see how it ends up, how he ends up playing by the end of the season's end. Used to be an on-base percentage monster, just a guy you really had to have in, in on-base leagues. Uh, I think he had a couple of home runs earlier this week in back-to-back games, did he not? Yeah, he's got a couple of home runs. Like I said, it was the powers. Like I said, the power's kind of been there. He's just got a 178 batting average right now. That's kind of dragging things down if you're in a batting average league. And his walks are like way down at 4%. It wasn't like the historical, like near 20%. Right. So I think he just had to kind of change who he is. It was kind of ominous that was coming from the changes from last year. And it was just like those people in the, that thought they were going to get that OBP might be struggling a bit. You also appear regularly on the Launch Angle podcast with a past guest of Baseball HQ Radio, a fellow Ontarian, Rob Silver, who's a lot of fun to talk with. You guys sound like you're having a lot of fun when you do the show, along with host Van Lee. How often does the podcast drop? We usually try to do it once a week. Usually, the deal is also usually one of the three of us have something going on, and sometimes it's not on Monday. We try to do it then, and then... um. Yeah, last week Van had something come up, so it's supposed to be every week, but it may end up being more like every other week sometimes. Ever go multiple times a week? We have never gone to that. We've always just done the once a week. It's um, just something. Van's got a lot of them for other ones he's hosting, so we just try to keep it once a week and kind of look back at like the last week or so is um, what we've done. On the most recent show on Monday, you mentioned what looks like it might portend a significant change in the closer universe. Uh, what were you talking about there? Yeah, what we've been looking at, what I've been seeing with that is we're, we kind of had mentioned it earlier, where not every team is going to have a single closer that's going to get all the saves at any time. Like a lot of years, like, oh, one guy was split, but it was because a guy was hurt or something like that. Like, Right now, it's in a lot of cases, it's like you're going to have this one guy with 15, another guy with 10, another guy with five, you know, and it's going to be tough to kind of pinpoint who those players are in time, like occurring all those saves on your team. And you're going to have a lot of bench. It's going to be really frustrating. And I think that that's, I think it's going to be the new norm, especially the way other teams saw Tampa was able to do it get to the world series. They're like, well, this is one change. It's so easy to make. And they're just going to try to win. Um, maybe eventually each year, like, okay, we finally got our seventh and eighth inning guys. You know, I was over with the Royals when, you know, made the two world series. And like, we definitely had our, we even had like our fifth, sixth, seventh and eighth guys. That was, our starters were horrible, but it's like, once we got a lead in like the fifth inning, like, the game was pretty much over. So um, we'll see if that still exists or if people are going to move them around a little bit more. The one thing I've seen is, I'm kind of wondering if teams like the Braves with like where you have that lefty in there that it may be good to grab that the righty or the lefty because the teams might go for the matchups um, a little bit more. It's like, oh, they've got, you know, um, Bryce Harper coming up. We're going to throw Will Smith against him in the eighth and then we'll let um, Chris Martin or someone else close out the ninth. So I think kind of look at in those situations, you might be able to get like a 10 save guy out of it. and that those 10 saves just might be huge this year because you just don't know the options just might not be available to, you know, everyone to have a 30 save guy or two 30 save guys. 
I think that's really, really likely that uh, we're going to have to start rethinking this whole model a lot. Uh, you mentioned the Braves. I was also thinking of the Twins, where they've got a probably the better reliever is the left-hander in Taylor Rogers, but they do seem to be giving uh, save opportunities to Alex Colomy, the new the new hire that they picked up this year, although if he keeps performing like he has recently, that might change, and they'll have to make some other alternative arrangements, but don't you think that the trend is going to be that as younger managers come into the game and as the analytics start digging in even further that what we're going to see is teams are going to have 7th, 8th, and ninth inning guys like Kansas City used to, only the 7th inning guy might pitch the ninth, the ninth inning guy might pitch the 8th, and it's all going to depend on matchups and, and using analytics to, to get the most optimal situations for each of those pitchers? Yeah, and I think we saw it last year, and we'll see it this year a few times once the Mets and the Nationals have to make up their games, is you're just not going to have the arms when they start having all the double headers to close out each game. I don't know if they're going to want, you know, they're not going to want them to throw twice the same day. They're going to be really backed up. You're not going to get the rest. So I think if you have, it might be the year to kind of get that Jose Alvarado type guy. It's another one that's lefty. And as long as you're getting good ratios out of him and you just need those saves, it might be worth kind of starting them. And the worst is at when the season's over, we're going to be like, this was the right way to do it. We have no clue right now what's the right way. And it was kind of like if we're dealing with the twins, it's like, well, just get a guy that's talented and go with him. And the weird thing with the twins is like, or not the twins, the Rays, like, but with the Rays right now, they kind of have their guy and they're just using him. So it's kind of, they're kind of going against the trend. You also mentioned on that podcast that it's getting harder to find full-time hitters, even in 15 team mixed. How tough is it getting and why? The biggest thing right now is just there's a lot of platoons. I actually went to my main event team and looked for an outfielder. Like if I had to replace someone, um, my buddy, Nomar Mazzara is out there kind of in a platoon. DJ Stewart from Baltimore. He may have a full-time job now. He just kind of came back. He kind of slid in and people didn't notice it. Steven Piscotty, not really a full-time guy. Andrew Stevenson. He's kind of got it. He had one with um, everyone hurt. I don't know if it's still that case. Eli White, um, he sort of got it. Jacoby Jones, he's part-time. Brett Garner, part-time. Jordan Leplo, part-time. It's just, um, sorry about my clock. I'm sure everyone hears it. But um, the um, it's just like all of these guys are kind of platoon bats right now. And it's, um, especially with like the outfield is that way. Um, there's no full-time guys if, if you're around a 15-team league. It's just like it's really going to be tough to kind of find those guys. Kevin Pilar's out there. He's not playing all the time. Sam Haggerty's not playing all the time. Darren Ruff, Kyle Garlick. So I think if you can kind of find a guy like DJ Stewart, like the people that kind of picked him up, like, and he's going to be full-time, I think you kind of just want them, even if they're not like the most talented, just so you have a guy that can fill in if one of your guys gets hurt. Is it the same thing going on, Jeff, with the infielders? Or is it a little more solidity in those lineups? I think there's a little bit more solidity. The one position is kind of that first, a lot of teams have some weird first base DH stuff going on that we, it's um, that's kind of where they kind of stick some guys. But I think overall in the infield, it's a little bit better. Um, yeah, I was just looking at first base, first base. There's some guys got Garrett Cooper is playing all the time and so forth. 
second base is kind of the same way, but it's mainly in the outfields. They can kind of get those platoons with, especially with like three different positions, they can go with it. I mean, there's definitely some platoons in the infields and right now, but not as many as the outfield. Yeah. I have to admit, Jeff, that when I saw the tea leaves coming a couple of years ago, as they started putting more and more pitchers on their rosters and fewer and fewer hitters, I thought there was going to end up being more full-time hitters. And it turns out that they, instead that they are doing kind of more matching up and especially using your Marwin Gonzalez, Kike Hernandez type guys who can get their at-bats all over the field and allows them to mix and match a little bit in, in the late innings. But it's uh, it's been a bit weird that <laughs> that the the uh, number of full-time hitters has not increased with the decrease in the amount of hitters that are on rosters. Yeah, and I think a lot of times kind of like I think they're using their fourth outfielder like Jordan Leplo is probably that way with Cleveland. So he's like, "Oh, he's our fourth outfielder, but he's good enough that we're just going to whenever we are up against a lefty, he's in and someone else is going to sit." Like their fourth outfielder just isn't sitting on the bench. So maybe there's going to be a case where Jordan Leplo comes full time if someone gets hurt. But right now it's just part time. I think that happened with like Tim LaCastro was part time with um, the Diamondbacks. And now with that whole team on the IL right now, um, he's getting full time play, but it may disappear. So I think there's might be some cases of that where you have to kind of notice hey, this guy was part-time, someone got hurt, he moved into full-time. Like that, Andrew Stevenson was that way. He was kind of, you know, bench bat, not playing all the time. And it's like, all right, I've got him for a week, I can use him, and then I'll just, I just have to be able to move on the next week. You mentioned the first base DH mix and match kind of situations that are all over the place in Major League Baseball these days. And one of them that you guys discussed was Rowdy Tellez. You talked about him earlier. He got his first hit of the season on Monday. He got his first home run of the season on Tuesday. Uh, What's your take now on a guy who was really something of a tout darling this offseason, including this tout, I have to confess? Uh, Dude, I had... I'm also there. I was, I was all in. I, I thought he was going late. He'd made some good changes. He was hitting for power. Um, yeah, just really improved his plate discipline. And it just seemed lost at the plate here to begin with. And he's gotten these couple hits. He's got his hitting streak, got his two in a row here, but he's got a bab up of 0.056. So his strikeouts, like his struggles are all based on batted balls and Hopefully some would start falling. Like if he could just get it up to 200, he would look out a thousand times better. So he's someone that I'm, again, a bench. I really don't want to put him out on the waiver wire. I think that there's a good chance that he's could be something special. Um, but he really has to kind of get going before the rest of the team um, comes back healthy because they got Springer and Teoscar on the IL and they had Guriel. So he was able to still kind of, force himself in the lineup a little bit. They sat him some, but if he doesn't get things, like I said, he really needed to get things going this week and he did. So he just kind of needs to keep it going. And I think that they're, you could end up with someone like really good. Cause I said last year, yeah, just in a few games he played, it only was like a half a season had eight home. So like 30 games or so he had his eight home runs batting 283. I don't think any of us expected that, but if we could get around 25, 30 home run power for the rest of the season from him, I think that would be great. I think one of the stories that has been underreported in the analytical community is that last season, both Rowdy Telez and Kevin Biggio really made some great strides in their plate 
discipline and their plate approach, and that was because they were under the tutelage of Dante Bichette, the uh, who was kind of a non-hitting coach, hitting coach, just came in and kind of helped some of the guys. And Dante Bichette hasn't been around this year. And I wonder if, uh, I know uh, Biggio's off to a slow start, Telez is off to a disastrous start, and I wonder if that might be part of the issue and what we need to watch to expect a rebound for these guys is if Dante Bichette comes back and rejoins the uh, the bench team for the Blue Jays, and if he doesn't, maybe that uh, we shouldn't really expect as much as we might like to. It's just bizarre. It's like every one of them. I don't know. I don't know if they're just like not like want to leave spring training. Like like we're tired of Florida. <laughs> like let's get out of here. We want to go to our homes, which is probably going to be Buffalo. It sounds like you probably know more about Canada, but it doesn't look like anytime soon. It's going to be easy crossing the borders there. So maybe the all-star game at the earliest, maybe. So we'll have to see. I think like the team just may be like kind of wanting to get into some kind of normal routine and it's just not happening. What did you guys conclude in your discussion about uh, this sort of somewhat sensational Detroit edition, uh, rule five guy, Akil Badu? Um. I think kind of everyone likes him. I think the biggest, I had heard some rumors that um, kind of asking people that I knew in the game and they're like, this rule five guy is going to stick. Everyone said he's going to be on the team. He's going to stick. And he goes, if you're in like an ale only league, you need to grab him. I don't know if he's going to play every day, but Detroit knows there's something there. He can hit the ball and they're going to try to run him as their fourth outfielder this year. And he's done more than that. I mean, he's taken over four home runs so far, you know, got over a thousand OPS. Um, but it just sounds like he was a good player. And I think we're going to miss so many of these guys. Like, we don't know. He could have been in AAA last year. Like, we just don't know, you know, went, destroyed double A, made it to AAA. Like, he could have been on anyone's radar. And just, there's just no way to know with the season off. So I think there's going to be a, t- like I said, just, I think he, Oscar Noah, is another one that's that same way where he was just no one knew possibly the changes that he made. I mean, he was, he was he through a little bit last year, but we, there's just no way to know that. Um, is, is bell with the Royals is that way. It's like, Oh, he started this way. Like no one knew he was going to be, you know, on the starting team. And, um, and that's one reason I'm kind of been a little bit conservative with my fab bids is there's going to be these rookies. They're going to get called up. We're, we're going to start games here in 20 days. Thank God. Finally with the minors. And then we're going to have that one week where everyone gets called up mid season. It's going to be able to, I just kind of want some money around to um, be able to pick the best guy. I, I think that's out of that and um, go with that. And of course, as you mentioned, we're coming up to that point where the uh, playing time shenanigans uh, start to fall into place for the major league teams and they can get that extra year by waiting till the end of April, early May. And that'll be the cause of a bit of an influx as well. And I should warn our listeners, anybody who's paying attention, Akil Badu uh, may be due for a big downturn because he got all those home runs and all that production while he was on my bench in tout. And then I finally got to activate him this week, so I'm sure he's going to, you know, hit 123 and strike out more than he does anything else. So, what did you guys think of the first outing by Brent Honeywell, a former very highly rated prospect, just coming back? I think it was great. I, I do think, I think he's meant for the pin or like a short roll. I, I think that with all the injuries that he's had, I think it'll be really tough to see him going 
you know, hundred some pitches and so forth. But I think he's on the right team with the Rays where they're going to, he'd probably make a great opener. Like, all right, we know he can throw 30 pitches today. We'll let him throw his 30 pitches, lock down the game that far and um, be done. And they can control it. Like, okay, we know. And now we can rest him three days. We don't have to use him back to back days or whatever. So I think it's great. I just think he's going to have limited fantasy value. Um, Cause I don't think he'll be able to close and the openers just a lot of times don't have value unless you're in a really kind of specific league where you have like, there was always those ones where it's like you can run out your relievers quote unquote on the, on your starter days and get some good stats. I think he can give you those, but it's a great story. Just not, I don't know. There's no reason to go pick him up in fantasy right now. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jeff Zimmerman from Rotographs and the Launch Angle Podcast. And Jeff, you also have an active and very interesting Twitter presence. And just the other day, you used it to call for help. You said you were going down a wormhole, your words, about what in-season stat would be best for inferring hitting talent for the rest of the year. How did you get started going into this wormhole in the first place? Um, Actually, people like Akil Badu was kind of like, the inspiration, like we didn't, if you didn't know anything else about the hitter and we really didn't, how would you judge their talent based off of, you know, their few plate appearances? Like what's the best indicator of their talent with no other prior information? And um, so I did some digging and I'm actually going to write it up next week. I've got one I'm going to look at this week. But um, the the one that's readily available for everyone is expected WOBA. If you just want to know, you think the guy's changed his talent a lot, you can use it. There's a few articles out there on it, but it's they say that there's some other ones that are better, but you have to determine them yourself, and you have to kind of do your own math and regress the values. And I'll take those steps later. But if you just go to like X Woba and you're like, how's this guy hitting? Look at that. See where he ranks. Maybe if you're looking at picking up two hitters and you just don't know a lot about him, you can go to that. Um, like one person is like, I'm a little bit high on. We'll talk about later. It's like Jed Lowry is like, he's finally gotten healthy. It's like, oh, you know, they finally got the operations he needed on his legs and he's starting to hitting like, oh, those last you know few years are a little bit different. How's he compared to someone else right now? So that's what I found out. It's, and I, there's a future article coming on. It's it's high on my to-do list. Well, speaking of in-season stats, you had some sobering in-season stats for a guy you mentioned a moment ago in Toronto, Teoscar Hernandez. What's the bad news there? Oh, man, he he just looks like, well, first he's on the IL, but um, COVID one, but just lost at the plate. No walks, almost a 50% strikeout rate got a home run, but I mean, it's just ugly for him. And he kind of had some of these issues before and it's just like exploded this last year. Like he just kind of ran a hot Babbitt and he's still kind of, his Babbitt's still high, but the strikeouts are just out of hand. And um, pitchers just aren't throwing him fastballs. They're just throwing him breaking stuff and he's really struggling with it. So we'll see how he comes back or if he's working on, um, making some improvements, but right now, yeah, he was a definite for someone that invested like a top 10 round pick on him. They're getting nothing from him. Me being one of those such people. <laughs> Me being another, uh, you said on Twitter, you got a lot of ideas 
from an article on MLB.com about how the Rays have had so much success with their pitching. First, uh, what insights did you get from the article? And second, what ideas did the article generate? The big thing I found out from it is they mentioned multiple times, and I kind of just kind of blew off it once. And then when you, you hear it said about five times during it is they're big at getting to two strikes. And the one thing that's actually what I was going to write up today, as soon as we're done here, is how I think hitters really, they change their approach with two strikes. And historically, if you look back in any years, baseball reference is the best one if you go to like the hitting splits. And once hitters are at their, all their BABIPs are generally the same. Historically, the league BABIP is the same. Two strikes, ahead in the count, behind in the count. But the isolated power, they're just not hitting as hard. They're just trying to put the ball in play is around like a 100 ISO. And if the count's even, it's about 150 ISO. And if the batter's ahead, it's like 210 or so. So I think a key would be um, what I'm wanting to find out is if pitchers who get to those two strikes, who they are, and um, if that's one of the reasons that they can maintain soft contact. Um, is, is that one of the big things? Like no one can figure out why Kyle Hendricks does it. He just does. Well, maybe the reason is that I had already done some previous work at Baseball HQ of getting ahead and behind an account. And that's one of the big things too. I found it's a little bit different. The two strike bit, I'm going to kind of compare them to, I just don't know what, how it is, but the pitchers that just stay ahead, um, the hitters just don't hit as good. I mean, I, I, and, um, so it's not so much on the bad upside. It's more on the power. And then, you know, that ends up getting, you know, okay, they're maybe giving up, you know, little bitty singles. It's not doubles and so forth. So I think there's something there. just in like the public sphere, we really haven't um, gotten all the information, kind of dug through it all yet. That's an interesting thing to look at. I've looked at it myself in years past, where you're trying to parse out the the impact that various counts have on various pitchers against various hitters. And the problem is there's a lot of moving parts there to try to, to line up and, and to correlate. How, do you, how are you going about that? And when you start the article, Jeff, how long will it be before it uh, appears online? I'm guessing tomorrow. I, I'm, I'm oh. <laughs> just, I, I, I'd hope today, but uh, I'm realistic, like late tomorrow. Um, I, I have started in on it. So, I mean, it's, it was kind of like, oh, is there something here? Yes, there is. I'm going to compare the hitters, like the head and the behind count or the two strike approach. The problem is, is, you have to go to like each pitcher's like splits on baseball reference to get it. And I think that that's, it'd be nice if it was available. If we find out it's important is make it available everywhere in some form. I may try to update it like weekly or so and just kind of know that these guys that are getting ahead and be able to generate the weak contact who they might be. But no, um, yeah, I just want to see, since they mentioned it so much and a lot of times like with the Rays, I'll, see how true it is and see what it is. But, but no, I think getting ahead, I think it's just one thing that um, people haven't been able to parse out. And I think it's kind of important more and more I dig into it. So I think that was kind of how Johnny Cueto got around and people were like, well, how's he doing all this? I think he just was always ahead in the count and the batters just couldn't really just tee off on him. It was just a lot of singles and he eventually just, you know, would get out of the inning without much damage. 
And it makes sense, too, that that effect would be even more amplified at two strikes, especially if you're two strikes and a hit. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, that's where I'm just going to kind of <laughs> – exactly. I, maybe I should look at that one is get that double combination, and I bet it's nothing. Um, I mean, they're not going to hit at all. Yeah. But um, I just wish it was – some of the stuff was a little bit more available. Like, we always have, like, the first strikes stuff, and more I've dug into that, there's some – something to get ahead but i think it's like that next step it's getting to two strikes or it's getting to that's the key is racing to that i think is more important than just that first one well jeff i always like to wrap up these interesting discussions with some boons and banes these are players you think will help their fantasy teams or hurt them uh, let's start with some boons guys you think will provide some top value for the rest of the season uh, let's start in the american league with a boon hitter for each of these, I kind of went down on the ownership so they may be available in your league. I didn't want to kind of take, you know, I was like, oh, Mike Trout's going to be great. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I moved down to, Who? to yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, you know, Cunha's going to be better to go trade for him. Like, whatever, you know. So I kind of moved to some guys that may be available. Like I said, are probably some guys that are, you know, higher, but I just wanted to make sure that they might possibly be on the waiver wire. And one is um, Jed Lowry. He's um, got near like a night. About a thousand OPS right now, a couple home runs, and um, he's sitting in the top of the Oakland lineup with everyone hurt. Um, there was some news. I don't know when it came out. I had someone mention it, and I backed it up, so I don't know when it became known. But the Mets like wouldn't allow him to have the surgery he wanted, so he's finally had the surgery he's needed to get healthy. So he's kind of my boon. I think that there's a chance that he could just get a lot of counting stats, and if he just gets on base, he's always had a good walk rate. I think he could just be this low, you know, kind of sneak in and um, be a great ad right now for a lot of teams. Seems to hit the ball hard a lot. You're right about that. Uh, who's a National League boon hitter for you? This is what I, you got to watch, but I like Philip Evans of Pittsburgh. He's kind of an older guy. And with um, Hayes out, he kind of moved into shortstop, but he can, or into his third base slot, but he can play in the outfield. He's always had reasonable plate discipline. He's got some power. It's kind of like 15. He's not going to steal bases. He may be having a little bit more power this year. He hasn't really shown it in like the stat cast metric yet. So he's one that I'm um I'm interested. Like he's playing all the time. He's at the top of the lineup. So he's available in a lot of leagues. He's going to have a lot of position eligibility. He may end up being kind of like a Marwan Gonzalez type play where you can just play him all over. Kind of a sneaky guy last year in the short season. I think his OPS was over 900. And maybe that's one of those situations where a guy just kind of started figuring it out and we didn't notice because he wasn't doing it in a full season or we discount it because we say, oh, anybody can do anything over 60 games. His next 60 games could be 600 and then he's just a regular guy again. So Philip Evans, interesting guy. Uh, American League Boone pitcher for you, Jeff. Um. I already mentioned him a few times. I'm really big on Steven Matz. He just got nailed by the home runs last year at 4.1. He kind of made some nice improvements. And right now his he's actually like outperforming his ERA. And last year he, you know, he was way below. So a lot of his stats are like weirdly the same. But like I said, it's just kind of the home runs have gone down from 4.1 to 0.7. So I think you kind of have to have Matz and um I think it was going to be good. You might be a few times, like maybe not use him against New York, the Yankees, you know, in Yankee Stadium. But I think he's a guy you're going to start at least 75% of the time. 
I was a bit surprised when I actually have Stephen Matz in a couple of rosters, and uh, his strikeout-to-walk rate is better than I would have guessed the last couple of years, including this year. He was up around, like, in, in the low low to mid twos for a long time, and all of a sudden, uh, three in 2019, 3.6 last year, and still holding it at 325 this year. It's not great, but it's certainly a step in the right direction, and uh, especially if he's doing it by walking fewer guys, which he is, uh, strikeouts per nine are pretty solid as well. I like him. A National League boon pitcher for you? Oh, I brought him up a few times. I'm, I'm in love with Oscar Noah, Enoa from the Braves. The one thing with him is I wouldn't go crazy on him in the, like if you're in a keeper league or a dynasty league. He is just a two-pitch pitcher. It's just fastball and slider right now, but they're good. Like Patrick Corbin has turned himself into being a good pitcher with just two. I just think that there's some limit to his upside. Eventually, like people may catch on to him, but he's got a good ground ball rate to go with it near 60%. So I, I, like I said, if, if there ever gets a third pitch, we may be talking – I mean, I hate to say it like you're going to be like one of the top 10 pitchers in the league. Like the, there's two great pieces already, three pieces already there with the ground ball rate, the slider and the fastball. Um, if he gets that third pitch, I think there, it could be someone special. Kind of weird that he had such a poor spring training, right? His ERA was around eight and his whip was 160 or so. And then all of a sudden he comes out of nowhere like this, uh, ERA under one, uh, whip way under one. It's uh, it's an interesting bounce back and a, and a kind of an iffy situation for me because, you know, you mentioned that if he finds that third pitch, he could really be super special, but that's a mighty big if. Yeah, and I had read, heard... Someone mentioned, and I don't, I couldn't find it written anywhere. So a lot of times I don't listen to a lot of um, like games and so forth. Like I said, if it's not written, I really can't find it sometimes is that he was working, trying to work on that third pitch is why he struggled during spring training. But I'm not, I can't verify that. (laughs) That's my problem. It was like, I heard it, I heard it from someone else, not from him or from the team that that was what was going on. Jeff Zimmerman's Boons, Jed Lowry of Oakland, Philip Evans of Pittsburgh, Stephen Matz of Toronto, Huascar Inoa of Atlanta. Jeff, let's move on to your Baines. These are guys you think have a good chance of disappointing fantasy managers the rest of the way. Feel free to take big-name guys in this category. Uh, who's a hitter in the American League who could be a Bane? I am going, my Baines are going to have the same kind of focus here. I think it's David Dahl. I should, he wasn't as high as some of the other ones, but just he really he, he struggled at Colorado and he's always been just really bad on the road and it's just continuing I think this is just not really a great hitter out of there and I just I don't know if he's really rosterable I he wasn't on any of my radars coming into the year I had him as just really late and he may even end up in he's always had problems against lefties also so he's only kind of like a part-time player or I guess Texas may use him as a full-time, but I just don't think he's really that good. And I think pretty soon I would almost rather have no more Mazzara over him. And he wasn't definitely not being drafted that way. In the National League, who could be a Bane hitter? I really think this is with the Rockies. I think the, the team is just 
there's just no hitters available. And I'm kind of worried that Charlie Blackman's just not going to get the counting stats because of no one else being around him. There's Trevor story. And at least the steals are kind of propping story up, but Blackman was always like, I want to get on base. And then a bunch of people are going to hit reasonable. People are going to hit me in. And there's just not those options this year. CJ crone is kind of just not been going either. So I'm kind of just, I think he Charlie and Charlie Blackman's quit stealing. So I think he'd just be one of those guys that, by the end of the year, like that whole team, I'm just, they're ones, like if they're on the road, that's when you, people are going to be streaming their starters against them. And you're not really afraid to be using your, like any middle kind of guys. Like it used to only be the aces in Colorado. I think you're going to see more and more people going with like kind of middle, middle range starters and being willing to use them against that lineup in Colorado. Crone is off to a pretty decent start, five homers, but only eight RBIs, which kind of goes to what you're saying about the weakness of the lineup in general. Uh, over to the pitching mound again. Uh, who's an American League Bane pitcher for you? This all depends on your league setup, but I think Otani, you just really cannot be counting on him as a, a starter the rest of the year. I know he's hurt, and I think he wants to try it and he's hitting so good that he could be in, like the MVP hitter. But I think it's just really tough to find a way or feel encouraged about him starting. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. He's, he's good. That one game, the Sunday night game was just amazing. And I think we'll get like two or three of those, but I think he's just going to be really frustrating being hurt or pushed back. And I was so worried too that he had his start like on the weekend. I think that you want him like middle of the week or the first part of the week so you know if he's healthy. It's so bad when he's like on the end of that week and you've got to, you know, set your lineups for the week and hope he makes it and hope there's no rain out that pushes everyone back. So hopefully if, when he comes back, he's in the middle of it. But he's just going to be so frustrating, and especially the way he's hitting. I, I think, I don't know when the Angels would do it. I think it's more of like Otani wants to do both. But I think eventually he's just going to have to become a hitter. And who's a pitcher in the National League who could be a bane? Chris Paddock. I think he's. I think he's done. He's got that two pitches, and well, he's he's got two pitches, but we won't mention his fastball. <laughs> you know, it, it's just it's getting hit around. He's still got the great change, but it, it's just not there. He's kind of got some control issues this year, and it's this is one of those deals. The problem with like, which gives me with Ianoa some hesitation is like if the fastball goes, if one of his other pitches goes, he's just not usable then. I mean, it's really tough just to be a one-pitch guy. So um, I don't think you can sell on Paddock. I think he's just kind of bench and hope he figures it out. But he's just walking everyone. He's not really got the strikeouts anymore. It's just gotten worse and worse every year. Like, I don't – I don't know if he's hurt or what's going on, but I just, I think it's just, I'm not, yeah, like I said, I, I wouldn't drop him, but you definitely want to see some improvement over the next week or so. Jeff Zimmerman's Baines, David Dahl of Texas, Charlie Blackman in Colorado, Shohei Otani of the Angels as a pitcher, and Chris Paddock of San Diego. Jeff, remind our listeners where they can keep up with Jeff Zimmerman. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Jeff W. Zimmerman. I'm writing regularly for um rotographs right now that's um pretty much just it and then the launch angle podcast usually comes out early in the week depending on all the three of our schedules monday or tuesday 
And um, we've kind of been trying to, we're going to kind of look back. We're trying to cover something that other people haven't. And um, I think we're going to kind of go like, our plan is, is once we get a couple weeks in the season is actually look back two or three weeks at some of the fab things and kind of see what was the smart move? What were the bad moves? And if there's any trends we can kind of glean from that, but we just don't have enough. We haven't had enough time. Um, just a lot of other content of people providing immediate stuff. So we might just step back and go a little bit deeper. It was kind of like during the off season, we looked at like really deep targets. And it was like, most of the time we see everyone talking about the first, like first round, like they'll spend an hour on that. And it's like, well, you know, I think everyone's kind of got those first top guys down. Let's go a little bit deeper. So we kind of started at like player 250 that was in the ADP and just kind of analyzed them and move from there. So I think that just want to kind of do stuff that other people aren't providing. And no small feat because there's an awful lot of podcasts out there about fantasy baseball. Certainly the Launch Angle podcast, one of the best, most entertaining and most informative. It's a really, really good show. Uh, Jeff, thanks very much for making this a better show today. I do appreciate it. I hope I can catch up with you during the season as well. All right. Thanks a lot for having me, Patrick. Jeff Zimmerman writes regularly for Rotographs and appears weekly on the Launch Angle podcast. And hey, before we roll on ahead, I wanted to let you know about our next show, another Friday full edition with a feature interview with analyst Vlad Sedler, one of the most successful NFBC players around and a writer and analyst at rotoguru.com. It's time now for our regular commentaries. The frequent flyer and my extra innings comment are coming up and leading off. It's the minor league minute. And here with a look at prep shortstops, Jordan Lawler and Marcelo Meyer is baseball HQ minor leagues analyst, Rob Gordon. With the minor league season still several weeks away, this week's minor league minute takes another look at two of the top prospects for the 2021 MLB draft. Last week, we talked about Vanderbilt's dynamic duo of Kamar Rocker and Jack Leiter, who up until that point were both 7-0 with a sub-1 ERA. Of course, Rocker immediately laid an egg in a 14-2 shellacking versus Georgia that saw his ERA balloon all the way up to 1.88. Leiter, on the other hand, was as dominant as ever, giving up just one run with 13 punchouts over 7 innings, and he now has 84 strikeouts and just 49 innings pitched. But enough about Rocker and Leiter. This week we take a look at two prep shortstops in Jordan Lawler and Marcel Mayer, both of whom are projected to come off the board in the top five picks of the draft. At 6'2", 195 pounds, Lawler might be the only true five-tool talent in this year's draft class, and he makes the game look easy. Defensively, the Texas native has smooth actions, above-average range, soft hands, and a strong, accurate arm. At the plate, Lawler has a compact right-handed stroke with above-average present power that could turn into a plus tool once he matures and learns how to drive the ball. He uses a patient approach at the plate to make consistent hard contact and has a plus runner with some scouts giving him 70 grades for his speed. Lawler does need to improve his footwork and some analysts wonder whether he'll stick it short, but long-term he offers as much offensive upside as any prep player in the class. Right behind Lawler is California native Marcelo Mayer. The USC commit doesn't have as loud of tools as Lawler, but has above average tools across the board. At 6'3", 180, Mayer has a lean projectable frame, but already has impressive raw power from the left-hand side of the plate. Defensively, Mayer is the rare polished high school shortstop who most analysts believe will have little difficulty sticking at the position over the long term. Given the limited five-round draft last year and the depth of the collegiate class, it will be interesting to see how quickly Lawler and Mayer come off the board. 
But long term, each has tremendous potential, and they should join the incredibly deep crop of talented shortstops in the majors. But don't look for them until 2024 at the earliest. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon is a member of the Baseball HQ Scouting Team and has his Minor League Minute here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. And speaking of scouting, this week at BaseballHQ.com, the Daily Call-Ups Report looks at some potential stars like Minnesota outfielder Alex Kirilov, Atlanta left-hander Tucker Davidson, we talked about him, Philadelphia right-hander Spencer Howard, and all of the Minor League's call-ups every day. And in This Not That, analyst Chris Blessing compares Wander Franco to some other leading candidates for the title of baseball's top prospect. Now it's time for the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a stash on your roster. Here with a look at Cubs right-hander Doris Valdez is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Although there appears to be a lot of excitement surrounding the triple-digit fastball of Chicago Cubs 25-year-old prospect Doris Valdez, some might say that his big league expectations are out of control. Standing six foot eight, Doris Valdez is an imposing figure on the mound with the potential for a 103 mile per hour delivery. However, control is an issue. Despite throwing approximately 61% of his pitches for strikes in 2018 and 2019, Doris Valdez issued 57 free passes. More importantly, Doris Valdez averaged 28 walks per season and averaged 17 wild pitches per season between 2018 and 2019. To put that in perspective, Doris Valdez unleashed 17 wild pitches in 2018 and unleashed another 17 wild pitches in 2019 while averaging only 54 innings pitched per season, or roughly one wild pitch every three innings. Whoa, look out! That's why 25-year-old Doris Valdez, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot or at least a wild card, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Nevertheless, digging deeper is something we love to do at BaseballHQ.com. Doris Valdez's 28 walks and 55 innings pitched at AA in 2019 translates to a control rate of 4.6 walks per game, where we at BaseballHQ.com recommend targeting pitchers with control rates of 2.5 walks per nine or less. So control is an issue. But what about strikeouts? Doris Valdez's 68 strikeouts and 55 innings pitched at AA in 2019 translates to a dominance rate of 12.8 strikeouts per game, where we at BaseballHQ.com recommend targeting pitchers with dominance rates of 9 strikeouts per 9 or higher. So the strikeouts, measured by the dominance rate of almost 13 strikeouts per game, are good, if not exceptional. But the walks, or control rate, of 4.6 walks per game, well, needs improvement. A lot of improvement. Put them both together, comparing strikeouts to walks, and Dries Valdez produced a command ratio of 2.4 strikeouts to walks in 2019. So at 2.4 strikeouts to walks, Dries Valdez is approaching our recommended command ratio at BaseballHQ.com of 2.5 strikeouts to walks or better. 
More specifically, that means the 25-year-old Chicago Cubs reliever, Doris Valdez, is also approaching our recommendation for adding him as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for extra innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about my mixed feelings about the return from injury of San Diego shortstop Fernando Tatis. Amid all the bad news of injury rocking the fantasy baseball universe and its parallel universe in actual baseball, a ray of sunshine in our baseball lives, in addition to Ray of Sunshine Murphy, of course, Fernando Tatis is scheduled to rejoin the Padres on Friday night as they open a home series against their main rivals, the Los Angeles Dodgers. Tatis is recovering from a partially dislocated left shoulder and a partially torn labrum he got while swinging the bat on April 5th. Now he's back. He's been taking batting practice and participating full speed in other baseball drills. And as someone who has Tatis atop a fantasy roster, my main hope is that he can get back to normal. Through five games before his injury on April 5th, Tatis was hitting just a buck 67 with one lonely home run. But still, this announcement has given me mixed feelings. Of course, I'm delighted that Tatis is back to help my struggling team in the Raz Slam Invitational 50-player Best Ball Points League, which of all the leagues I've ever played in certainly has the longest name. On the other hand, I'm not 100% confident. Doctors have apparently told the Padres that returning to action poses no health risk for Tatis, except for the risk of another dislocation which is kind of like your mechanic telling you your car is running fine, except for the transmission. So that's concerning enough. But then there's the rest of the story. As Paul Harvey used to say, which is one of my timely cultural references that will be highly meaningful to anyone who remembers tuning their radio by pulling on a cat's whisker, or something like that. The other part of the story is that the Padres are reportedly trying to reduce Tatis's injury risk, basically by putting a little sawdust in his transmission. They're going to coach him on a few changes to how he plays the game. First, they want him to keep both hands on the bat all through his swing and not let go with his top hand in the follow-through. Now, for those who won't know what the follow-through is, it's what we in Canada haven't got from our various government promises about vaccines. More to the point in this context, however, the follow-through is the part of a baseball swing after the ball has been hit or missed. You might be confused because a lot of baseball announcers call the follow-through the backswing, especially when the bat hits the catcher in the head. The idea here is that letting go of the bat with your top hand, the right hand for a right-handed hitter like Tatis, means the left arm has to carry the entire load of the swing on the follow-through, and that puts all the stress of the swing onto the left arm. And the shoulder in particular is the focus of all that angular momentum. If Tatis just hangs on to the bat with both hands, that stress will be reduced, and I can buy that. But also they're trying to get Tatis to be more selective about when to dive for grounders, hurtle into the stands after a fly ball, slide head first while he's running the bases. These are all good ideas, but I don't know if it's going to work. And even if it does, I don't know if I'm going to like it very much. One of the things I like about Tatis that makes him so fun to watch and to have on a fantasy roster is that he looks so free out there. It looks like he's having fun and really trying his hardest. He's like a kid on a little league baseball field, and there's something appealing about that in our cynical world. We get for just a minute to share in the joie de vivre, as my Irish relatives say, of a 22-year-old gazillionaire 
playing a little boy's game really, really intensely. So, I don't know how readily Fernando Tatis can just rein in all that exuberance. And to be honest, even though it would probably be better for my fantasy team if Tatis did slow himself down a little, I really kind of hope he doesn't. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, and I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 16th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 20 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday full edition. Jeff Zimmerman writes regularly for Rotographs and appears weekly on the Launch Angle podcast. Jeff's a very interesting guy. He does baseball research. He's a fine writer and a terrific analyst. And he's a lot of fun to talk with about baseball and about other stuff. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. Our minor league commentator was Baseball HQ minor leagues analyst Rob Gordon. And our frequent flyers commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on those BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. And you can leave a question for our guests if you like. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you catch your pods. And if they'll let you, leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring our expert interview with analyst Vlad Sedler, one of the most successful NFBC players in the business and a writer and analyst at rotoguru.com. And of course, wouldn't be a Friday full edition without NL and AL player news with Nick and Ray, Rob Gordon's Minor League Minute, Alex Becky's Frequent Flyer, and my extra innings comment. Vlad Sedler coming up Friday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk to you Friday. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.